if the sun is out or one and once the sun is out, go outside without sunglasses and get some bright light in your eyes. Sleep is your best nutrition. People who slept five hours yeah. had higher risk for weight gain. Exercise is fundamentally good for us because it's a stressor. But a healthy lifestyle can definitely provide instances for the brain and for the body to repair itself and to function at its peak. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Howdy, friends. Great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. Last week, we featured part one of the best moments from The Proof in 2022. And this week, we bring you part two, a compilation that mostly focuses on sleep, exercise, and planetary health, featuring a range of guests from across the year, including Professor Andrew Huberman, Paul Taylor, and Drs. Dean and Aisha Scherzai. Thank you for joining me. I hope you find this episode interesting and can use the information within to live better for longer. It's clear that excess adiposity, particularly fat around our organs, known as visceral fat, increases our risk of developing metabolic conditions such as type 2 diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Usually when we think about the causes of weight gain, we focus on the food we eat and our lack of exercise. But there's more to the story here. Another aspect of our lifestyle, sleep, or more specifically, insufficient sleep, may be hindering your progress to lose weight and promoting more visceral fat, the type of fat we really want to minimize. Here I discuss a recent study looking at sleep deprivation and body fat in an episode with Drew Harrisburg. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company 
with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. So new paper just came out, published, looking at how does sleep or sleep deprivation, I should say, affect energy intake, energy expenditure, and also adiposity weight gain. So really interesting study. Essentially, trying to ask the question, if you are sleep deprived, will you consume more calories? Will you expend less energy? Will you gain weight? Where will that weight be? And this study uh, was set up in a way to answer all of this. And, and the hypothesis was that as you deprive someone of sleep, they will consume more calories. There's a bunch of research that's looked at that. This was an interesting trial for a few reasons. It was published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology uh, maybe one or two weeks ago, so it's brand new. And it was a randomized crossover trial. So it had two phases and crossover, meaning that every participant got to experience both phases. Mm -hmm. So there was a sleep deprivation phase. And I should say these were healthy adults aged 19 to about 40. They were non-obese. Two phases. One was the sleep deprivation phase. The participants were sleeping four hours a night. And this is in a, a sort of inpatient setting, like a metabolic kind of ward where- Very controlled. Very controlled, right? You can see they're measuring uh, energy expenditure, exactly how long people are sleeping and all the food they're eating. Mm-hmm. So sleep deprivation, deprivation phase, four hours of sleep a night. That's a two-week phase. And then there was the other control phase Oof. where they slept nine hours a night. Two weeks of four hours a night. That sounds unethical, mate. Yeah, that's oh, tough, that'd be right? tough, yeah. Mm. One hour of four, one sleep of four hours. I'm yeah, dead. so uh, obviously these, these folks that, that signed, uh, up signed up got remunerated. I hope they did, <laughs> I hope they did. handsomely. Um, but so really interesting design. And I should say there's three months washout between the two phases. Mm. So people did the two phases in random order. Some people did the four-hour first and then the nine-hour sleep. Others did it the other way, vice versa. But either way, they had a three-month washout period, a space, a gap between mm-hmm. the two phases just to allow people to get back to baseline. Yeah. So what they found was super interesting. And I think there are some instructive kind of takeaway points here for us. Firstly, when folks were sleeping four hours a night, on average, they consumed 308 more calories per day. And they're, Significant. 
Yeah, and there is a few kind of hypotheses that may explain this. But again, the authors of this paper, they and they they kind of speculate a little bit, but they say that this is far from fully understood. Do they specify were the calories from like larger portions or were they seeking out unhealthier foods? Interestingly, they what they found specific to food was that that 308 calories was mostly from fat and protein. Interesting. And it was an ad, lib, ad libitum study. So people could essentially eat whatever they wanted, as much food as they wanted. And Do you have a theory on why they seeked out yeah, fat and protein? Well, maybe. Something just came to mind for me. But Tell I'm, me. I'm, well, I'm thinking, so one of the most important parts of sleeping is to repair, cellular repair mm-hmm. and regenerate cells, right? And like heal, and the body recovers. If you're not recovering... Maybe you're seeking out amino acids or proteins to try repair mm-hmm. damaged cells. And mm-hmm. that's why they go for protein-rich food, which happens to also be packaged with fat, and they end up eating more of that kind of food. Totally just yeah, a well, I mean, theory that, 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 I that does fit with uh, Professor Stephen Simpson. I had him on the show um, and David Robenheimer, and they wrote a book called Eat Like the Animals, and their research was able to show a consistent, consistently across many different animals that protein – we have the strongest appetite for protein of all nutrients. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah, which is fascinating. The researchers here kind of hypothesize that there could be a few explanations. It could be changes in uh, various hormones that are appetite suppressing or uh, enhancing. Although in this study, they didn't see that, but other studies have. So it's an open question. It could be heightened uh, reward um systems. So parts of the the brain that are associated with reward, more activation. Mm -hmm. So you have this uh, enhanced kind of um, reward activation with unhealthy foods, very fatty foods. Right. So you get that dopamine hit. Yes. Find more food. Right. Yeah. So that's that's kind of uh, one of the, the theories. And then there is another theory that you know, people are just awake for more hours and therefore can consume more food. Right. Um, so there's a few different kind of uh, reasons for why people who are sleep de- deprived consumed more calories. Now, what's really interesting is that during that two week period, compared to the the compared to when folks were sleeping nine hours, they the sleep deprived group gained about half a kilogram. Mm-hmm. But then they did a DEXA scan. And it actually wasn't a difference in fat. Both groups actually gained a similar amount of fat. This is where it's really, really interesting. The sleep-deprived group preferentially developed visceral fat, mm. fat around their organs. And we know that that visceral fat is associated with elevated lipids, triglycerides, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, cardiovascular disease, uh, you know, most physicians will say it's it's better to to hold on to a bit of fat around your hips and your butt than it is around your abdomen yeah. for that reason. Yeah. So I think this study, and again, it just builds on many other studies out there, it highlights the importance if you are trying to manage your body weight or perhaps you want to lose weight, that's a goal of yours, to not just think about the food that you're eating, but to also think about your sleep routine. Yeah. Because if you're sleep deprived, if you're not focusing on that, 
you might be making it harder for yourself to consume maintenance calories or consume less calories than you need if you're trying to lose some weight. And you know what's crazy? This was just in two weeks. Right. Two weeks to have a significant, you know, visceral fat change. Imagine poor habits over a Mm. lifetime. You can see why people get chronic illnesses over over years and decades. This is a two-week trial. Yeah, I think 15% of of the population has type 2 diabetes, 25% non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. You know, these are diseases that are affecting a lot of people. Um, So it's a reminder that our health is, there are, it's very multifactorial. Nutrition is important, but here we see that sleep is very important. What about the nine hour group? What did they find? So this was all relative to that. Oh, okay. So so yeah. the differences that I explained are relative to the nine hour nine hour group. Right. Um, so I think some kind of tips here for folks that are thinking about their sleep and want to improve it and high level stuff, but I do plan to explore it more is you know dimming the lights before bed, getting the room nice and cold. Yeah. Doing something, and I think this is a really important one. Doing something that helps you feel relaxed and not agitated. So, so for example, maybe having a sauna or reading a book that you like or even watching a movie. I know people say, you know, screens are bad, but I think it's what you're doing on the screen that's really important. I agree. I think if you're watching something that gets you into a good mood yeah. versus using a screen and going on Twitter and getting agitated. Yeah, like don't look at a Stephen Lynn post before you go to bed <laughs> because you're not going to sleep. Right. right. <laughs> so I think, you know, just do something that makes you feel relaxed in those yeah. hours going to to, uh, to sleep before bed. Yeah. And then also with regards to food, trying to stop eating a few hours before bed. Yeah, I would, I would uh, add probably one or two things to that. So one would be you could use blue blockers if you want. So it could be mm-hmm. a scre- on, on, on your screen or goggles. It's super dorky, but it, they work. Um, you can turn the brightness down on your phone as well and you can change the type of light. Amber settings and stuff. Another one which is interesting is the cooling effect mm. of when you go to sleep, as your core temperature drops, you actually helps you fall asleep. So some people recommend having a warm shower or a bath mm. to get that body temperature up a little bit. And then when you get into bed, don't cover the blanket, cover yourself, leave your feet and hands out mm. so that they can cool. And as the heat radiates out of those parts of your body, it can help you fall asleep. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's why I put sauna in there. As opposed to ice bath, which probably isn't the best for most people before bed. Yeah, no, that's good. I think those are good tips. I think I do a lot of those and Mm. they certainly have helped me. So that's good. And then one other is is in the morning, setting your circadian rhythm by when you get up, try and get outside. And I know your dad speaks about this as well uh, with his work, but try and look out to the horizon. Yeah. Look, you know, far away, get that natural light exposure. You don't need to look directly into the sun. Yeah. But just getting out and getting that natural light exposure will help set your circadian rhythms, which will then be very important for later on in the day when the sun's going down to help your body get into a kind of hormonal state that allows you to fall asleep. And when you get that early sunlight... I believe that through sunglasses does not have the same effect. You mm. actually want that natural light filtering in. Of, of course, you're not going to stare at the sun, but mm. having natural light hitting the retina in not filtered through a sunglasses lens is probably important too. Okay, Simon, I hear you, but my sleep just isn't happening. What can I do to optimize things? 
I asked neuroscientist Professor Andrew Huberman about this. What are some of the things that you consider uh, that you think are instructive for other people to consider or perhaps you do yourself with your routine? I know, I know you talk about light, for example. Right. How, can, how can people encourage better sleep? Right. So um, great sleep to me is you fall asleep relatively easily. You wake up no more than once. It's actually pretty normal to wake up once in the middle of the night and go use the restroom and go back to sleep. Because a lot of people freak out when they wake up and they're like, oh, my sleep's messed up or their whoop score, or their aura score is off. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I mean, ideally you don't, but, uh, you know, a lot of people have what's called nocturia, which is nighttime need to urinate. So it happens. Um, couple of things that the the path to a really great night's sleep starts in the morning. Uh, I've talked about this a lot, but I'll say it again. Wake up. If you want to be alert, get as much bright light in your eyes as you can. Never look at any light that's so bright that it's, it's painful to look at because it can damage the eyes, but ideally sunlight. So if you wake up at 4 a.m. and the sun isn't out, turn on bright lights if you want to be awake. But if the sun is out or one and once the sun is out, go outside without sunglasses. And yes, you have to go outside. You can't do this through a window or through a car windshield and get some bright light in your eyes. It doesn't have to be beaming directly at you, but indirectly or in the general direction of the sun is good. Wearing corrective lenses or contacts is fine. Even if they have UV filters, that light can get to the neurons in the eye that trigger a whole set of processes. It sets in motion, a big increase in cortisol, but it's a healthy increase that leads to alertness. Triggers an increase in body temperature, which is important for waking up. There's a whole set of processes there. And it sets a timer on melatonin release so that about 16 hours later, your melatonin levels are going to go up. How long to view light? Well, anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes, depending on how bright it is. If you wake up and you go outside and it's 9 a.m. and it's beaming bright light and you're on a snow field, it'd probably take 30 seconds. If you're in the depths of uh, you know, UK winter and you go outside and there's a lot of cloud cover, maybe 20 minutes. You can check your phone out there. You can do things out. You could take your coffee out there, but you have to get outside. The, the window filtration is a serious Do you issue. do that every day? I do it every day. Every day. And I don't get enough sun off my porch behind us. So I will walk up the street. My neighbor's on you know, there and I, you know, I w walk up there with my coffee. I often bring my journal and just kind of write down whatever comes to mind. Get some sun in my eyes. Um, you know. My partner and I will you know, walk up there and, and we'll just chat and, you know, and, and then we would come back. And you do that most days. If you miss a day, no big deal. If you miss two days, you're starting to drift. And when I say drift, I mean that these neurochemical systems are going to start to, to get out of sync with the daylight cycle. Shift workers is a whole other business. We don't have time. I did an episode on shift work. People can find that on our website because um, it's very particular to shift work and jet lag. But that morning light pulse is, I say light pulse, light viewing is immensely important. Um, a drift in cortisol peak toward the later day is a signature of depression and waking up at three, four in the morning and not being able to fall back asleep. Signature of depression. A drift in cortisol yeah. peak. So you'll, you'll get that drift if you don't get that light exposure early in the morning. That's right. And, and so you're, you're going to get a pulse in a, a big increase in cortisol at some point every 24 hours. You want that to be early in the day and when you want to be alert. Now, some people wake up at 10 a.m., right? I've got a friend uh, who's, a, I consider, a, you know, he's kind of a mentee of mine and, and he likes to sleep in and he's a teenager. He sleeps in. So he's going to wake up at 10, but then he goes outside and he gets his sunlight. If you wake up at five, again, if the sun isn't out, turn on as many bright lights as possible and then go outside once the sun is out. Why? Because early in the day, you need a lot of bright light in order to trigger this mechanism. Now, the second tool is that later in the day, 
as the sun is heading down, it doesn't have to just be crossing the horizon. You also want to get light into your eyes for the following reason. It adjusts the sensitivity of the what we call the retinal photoreceptors, the cells in the eye that detect light, and makes it such that nighttime light that you're going to get at 8 or 9 p.m. won't have as severe an effect on reducing melatonin. So I consider it kind of your Netflix inoculation. Because when you're viewing screens at night or you're, unless you have built your house so that all the lights are red lights and they're really dim, most people use artificial lighting at night and that can mess up sleep. So if you're really extreme about it, you, you know, you make your house a cave at night. I don't do that. Okay. I tend to dim the lights. I don't like bright lights after about seven or 8 PM, but getting that afternoon light is great because it sends two signals to your brain and body about where you are in time, meaning time is the rotation of the earth. So you get your cortisol pulse early, melatonin comes on. People who start waking up late or super early and they spend all their time on their phone, it's not enough light to trigger these mechanisms early in the day. But at night, retinal sensitivity is such that if you are looking at your phone on full screen brightness or you have a lot of artificial lights on, you're going to suppress melatonin and you start disrupting these mechanisms. So bright light early, bright light in the afternoon, minimize bright light exposure in the evening, all f colors and flavors of light. It's not just blue light. This has got to be responsible for a lot of sleep issues. A ton of sleep issues. A lot of people have written to me. I would say thousands of people have written to me and said, I get morning sunlight every morning as best I can, 10 to 30 minutes, and my sleep issues are resolved. Now, some people do that and their sleep issues are not still resolved. I would say... Then you look to how late in the day are they ingesting caffeine? Do they have a kind of rumination issue? Are they eating enough? I mean, one thing that is not commonly discussed is that in order to sleep well, you have to eat enough, not necessarily right before sleep. And nowadays there's a big movement towards don't eat within two hours of sleep. And I think it's generally a good idea. Sometimes I obey that, sometimes I don't. But if you don't have enough starch in your system, sorry, low carb keto people, but if you're going to have sleep issues unless you do other things to offset that, because starches and the whole association with the tryptophan system and the serotonin system are part of the calming system. There's a reason why we reach for certain so-called comfort foods when we're stressed is because they increase the release of serotonin and they blunt cortisol. So if you're just a bag of cortisol and adrenaline and you're fasting a long period of time, it's very hard to, to get quality sleep. Now, and I, I think intermittent fasting is terrific. Sachin Panda, who really is the one that kind of popularized this at the scientific level anyway, is a, is a friend and colleague of mine, does beautiful work. But, you know, you need to figure out how much to eat and when to eat and what to eat in a way that still allows you to transition to sleep. So I'd say the light viewing early, the light viewing in the afternoon, avoid bright lights of all colors. Blue blockers are fine if you like them, but it's not just blue light that can mess up these circadian clock systems. Any bright light any bright light will do that because of the spectrum of, of wavelengths of light that the neurons that are responsible for this respond to. So then I would say there are some things to do around sleep. I mean, obviously, if you're experiencing a lot of emotional turmoil, that's a problem. Ideally, you're getting enough movement during the day that you're a little bit tired. I mean, you're supposed to fatigue yourself a little bit each day. You're not supposed to have an excess of energy. I will say that about an hour before your natural bedtime, you will, everyone experiences a kind of peak in alertness. This is something not often discussed. This is from, um, uh, forgive me, Chuck Zeiser's lab uh, at Harvard Medical School has shown that there's this, this spike in alertness about an hour before your natural sleep time. And the just so story is that this was designed to get you to uh, run around and, and tidy up and shore up your, your, your surroundings for safety. And when I say designed, I'm not, I'm not referring to, I don't get into issues of, of 
I would say one thing is absolutely certain, which is I wasn't consulted at the design phase and neither were you. So I don't wanna get in discussions about uh, religion and whatnot. I know many very religious scientists. I know a lot of atheists too. So that's not what I mean by designed, but uh, arranged. So if you are experiencing a lot of pre-sleep anxiety, just realize that that naturally passes after about an hour. And I think that can help a lot of people. And then if you wake up in the middle of the night, Nidra or some other NSDR, some people do very well with supplementation for sleep. And this is, I've been very active in promoting this because I saw a lot of people taking sleeping pills, prescription sleeping pills. And I, I can't believe that this many people rely on sleeping pills. It's crazy. Um, first of all, drinking alcohol or, you know, or THC to, um, before sleep will get you to sleep in many cases, but the sleep is of very poor quality. That's been established over and over again. And I'm, I don't care what people do. It's up to you, but you know, a couple glasses of wine to help you fall asleep. Your, your sleep sucks, frankly, you know, scientifically speaking, it sucks. It, you, it, you, and there's a whole set of other issues that you're creating there. Now, the supplements that make a lot of sense um, scientifically are things like magnesium threonate, T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E, or magnesium bisglycinate. Both of those cross, they need a transporter to get from the gut to the brain. And um, threonate is actually shown to be cognitive enhancing in some studies of, of uh, age-related cognitive decline. So um, yes, my podcast has a relationship to a supplement company, but I don't want to mention, uh, just shop for price if you're going to go down that route because I don't want to make this promotional. Um, bisglycinate or threonate, a lot of people do very well taking apigenin, A-P-I-G-E-N-I-N, which is a derivative of chamomile. Is there a dose on the magnesium? Uh, yeah, so on the magnesium, you have to, they distinguish between elemental magnesium and the standard dose. You, you want somewhere between 140 and 200 milligrams um, of magnesium bisglycinate or magnesium threonate. I should say 5% of people that I've heard from who take threonate uh, get severe gastric distress. They, they get get diarrhea, but most people don't. A few people do. One of my podcast employees, he can't take three and eight, but he does really well with Apigenin. Apigenin is 50 milligrams. Swanson is the only company I know that makes it. I have no relationship to Swanson. Apigenin activates a different system, the GABA system, which tends to turn off thinking. A lot of people do really well just with the magnesium or just with Apigenin. I happen to take both. And I confess that a couple of nights a week, I'll take um, you know 300 milligrams of GABA or two grams of glycine on top of that. And then it's like the sleep of gods. It's mm -hmm. really amazing. So what's, what would be the problem with taking those every night? Is there an issue or you just choose not to? Uh, I take them at, oh, I take the magnesium and the apigenin every night. And I um, occasionally take the GABA and the glycine. The GABA glycine added in tends to create really deep, really long sleep. And oftentimes I don't wanna sleep longer than six, seven hours. Um, but if people are having trouble sleeping, they should consider Certainly do the behavioral things, but then um, consider, you know, one to three of those supplements. And I, I, again, you know, check with your doctor. People with heart conditions might need to be particularly cautious about magnesium. But if you're not interested in the supplement route, the way I used to do this was to drink a cup of chamomile tea before sleep. And the apigenin in chamomile tea is a number of positive effects, but one of which is to make you feel less anxious and kind of calm down. You know, I don't know how much chamomile tea you have to drink in order to hit that 50 milligram concentration, but there's no reason it has to come from a pill. Uh, and I think the magnesium sources, I actually don't know where they, what, the, what the actual source of the magnesium is, so people could look into that. But I would just shop for price. These are relatively inexpensive. 
And considering what an outsized positive effect a good night's sleep has on everything, mental and physical health and performance, seems like a pretty good investment. Those last two, GABA and glycine, glycine. What, are yeah. the, what are the kind of doses? That yeah, so for GABA, I'm generally looking to get anywhere from 200 to 300 milligrams. And for glycine, it's one to three grams. And then for the threonate and the, I should say, or bisglycinate, either I use those interchangeably um, because they effectively have the same uh, effect. Um, you're looking at about, yeah, about 140 to 200 milligrams. Some people go higher, but then you can feel really drowsy the next day. And, um, and then apigenin is 50 milligrams. Uh, there are other things out there too. Um, I do not recommend melatonin. I was going to ask you that. I do not recommend melatonin for the following reason. One, it's a hormone that has other functions besides helping you fall asleep. It interacts with the reproductive axis, estrogen and testosterone, not necessarily lowering or increasing, but there's a lot of dynamic slow effects in those systems. The other is that the dosages of melatonin that most people take are outrageously high compared to what the pineal spits out on a normal basis. You'll see dosages of like one to 12 milligrams. That's a huge amount. I mean, we were talking about weightlifting earlier. This would be the, you know, typically the male testes, both testes, assuming someone has both testes, will uh, release anywhere from seven to 15. Um, uh, do I have this right? Yes, yeah, seven to 15 nanograms per day. And I'm sure someone's going to correct me on that. So correct me. Um, but this would be the equivalent of taking, you know, 100x that in the melatonin system. And of course, there are people that take 100x that in the testosterone system and, you know, they have other issues. Um, but melatonin just shouldn't be taken at, at excessive dosages. And it helps the transition to sleep, but doesn't help you uh, stay asleep. So I'm not a fan of melatonin. And um, I haven't run into any problems yet uh, with the, you know, melatoninistas coming after me. So I'm assuming that if people have switch, uh, switched over to this cocktail um, that it's working for a number of people. Again, the magnesium might be problematic for some for some people. But and then there's one last thing, which is theanine, right? Which is um, T H E A N I N E. Theanine is actually being packaged into a lot of coffees now and energy drinks secretly because it reduces anxiety, and so they're getting you to drink more coffee and more whatever uh, energy drink by trying to remove the jitters. Some people like theanine about 100 to 300 milligrams before sleep. Sleepwalkers and people who have night terrors don't take it. It makes for very lucid dreams, um, and and kind of it and very vivid dreams. I should say, not always lucid, but always vivid. So, would you recommend if someone's not taking any of these to introduce them all at once or one by one? One at a time. Yeah, one at a time. I mean, I, I've learned over the years that bisglycinate or three and eight is really the 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 sledgehammer for me, the good sledgehammer. The apigenin gives it a little bit of a different buzz. And sometimes it's, I like to have them all. Like for instance, last week I, I flew, flew to Boston for 24 hours to, to give a talk and I never sleep well in hotels. I don't like the air. I don't it just, it, you know, I'm not that finicky, but it just, so I really loaded up on everything in order to enhance my sleep, uh, to make sure I could sleep. But when I'm at home, if I'm really tired, you know, sometimes I'll fall asleep with the, the pills in my hand. I've had that happen. Like, oh, I'll take those in a few minutes. You sleep through the night. I've never found any dependence on these. Like if I forget them, I don't have trouble falling asleep. So it's very different than a sleeping pill. And again, I, I, I guess I do use a lot of supplements. My, my take on supplementation is they're just compounds like anything else. And if there's an opportunity to take safe, non-prescription fairly low cost compounds, as opposed to a prescription 
high side effect, potentially addictive or habit forming compound, why wouldn't I resort yeah. to the over the counter thing? So you know how sometimes uh, people talk about prescription sleep medications, helping people fall asleep, but maybe affecting quality. It's not something I've looked at in closely, the actual data on that, but would would these supplements, do they just help you fall asleep or would they affect quality at all? Uh, they do affect quality, but in the positive direction. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we've done a lot of work with um, Whoop uh, in my lab. They've been generously donate. I don't have any financial relationship to them, but they've generously donated Whoop bands for some of our studies. We haven't looked at supplementation specifically, but because of that relationship, a lot of people who use Whoop will just write to me and show me the shifts in their deep sleep. Because one of the measures that comes out of the Whoop band is how much deep sleep. And deep sleep is a complicated concept within the scientific community, but you get a score, deep sleep score. And they show very significant improvement. I see a lot of significant improvements in the amount of deep sleep, less nocturnal waking episodes, and so on. Uh, I don't want to share names of people that have given me their their um, information or data. And I've, I've received, I would say now I'm, I'm in the like upper, nearing a thousand of people say, wow, like my whoop scores are so much better. They're so much better. And the whoop scores are just one readout. The subjective feeling of how alert you are during the day is the most important thing. Insomnia actually has a definition. Insomnia is feeling so tired that you need to fall asleep during the day. A lot of people think they have insomnia, but they don't have insomnia. They have sleep disturbance. Insomnia is a true inability to sleep that invades with daytime productivity, such that you just need to sleep during the day. Losing body fat requires a calorie deficit, which naturally gives rise to cravings, which can threaten to derail our progress and ability to meet our body composition goals. Understanding that cravings are normal during periods of calorie restriction and having strategies to minimize hunger is integral to creating long-term results. I asked Fritz Horseman how he helps his clients with this. When people are eating in a calorie deficit, do you get people contacting you saying, hey, look, I'm just super hungry. I've got a lot of cravings, finding it hard to kind of sit in this calorie deficit. How do you kind of workshop that, I guess, to A, work out is the calorie deficit the right deficit for them and B, like what what sort of words of advice or tips could you give someone like that to sort of help help manage that and you know so they're not finding themselves sort of caving and and over consuming ice cream and cookies because they just have these these cravings that they can't get rid of yes very good question and this is definitely coming up uh, on on a dive when trying to lose weight but before that you want to ask yourself if it comes up very early on your journey to to losing weight and getting healthy, then you want to ask yourself, is the deficit set up the right way for your body and for your activity levels and for your needs? Because if you set up the nutrition in a way where you get all the macronutrients, all the micronutrients, and you have certain foods included that are going to give you more volume, I will talk about the tactics in a bit, then and the calorie deficit isn't as high, so it's healthy for your body and for your for your metabolism, for how many calories you burn every single day, then you actually won't feel hungry most of the journey. So mm-hmm. what will happen over time and what happens to our clients, so they get a diet set up and then they're just super full and they're satisfied and they're crushing. We even get messages like, hey, we can't finish the meal. Like it's too much food and I'm losing weight. What's, what's going on? What's the magic, right? And... If you keep losing, if you keep losing weight and getting leaner, at that point, at some point, yes, you're gonna have more cravings and more hunger because how you want to think about it, you're losing body fat. Mm. So back in the days, 
and we still had to hunt for food, that basically meant, hey, I'm dying. Like, right. not getting any food. So I got to go hunt. Mm-hmm. So it starts, like your body starts sending you signals, hunger mm-hmm. signals, hey, get food, like mm-hmm. um, go hunt down mm-hmm. some food. It's and protective. It's looking out for you. It's looking out for you, exactly. So if you want to get like very lean for a photo shoot or just like mm-hmm. to reveal your abs and to look good at the beach, then maybe at some point you reach a point where, mm-hmm. yes, you're eating all the healthy foods, you're eating all the macros and you're hitting everything, but you're still kind of a little bit hungry. Right. But the interesting part is, most people are not at that point. Mm. They still have a lot of fat to lose, but already getting hungry. And at mm. that point, the first question I would ask myself, is my deficit too high? Am I eating? I see mm. some people come to us, they're saying, hey, I'm eating 1,200 calories. Right. I'm eating 1,000 calories. So in that example, the body's sort of interpreting the size of the deficit and like the rate of tapping into fat. And even though there is additional fat, the body is essentially saying, hey, this is not sustainable. That's right. right. This is too too quick. You're going to run out of energy um, supplies here, which is going to threaten your survival. That's exactly it. But if you set it up the right way, then you can pretty much go for like a few months, depending on body fat level, without having any cravings. Mm-hmm. Now, when they come up, how do we how do we look at that and how do we approach mm-hmm. it if it's not the calorie deficit? So a few things here: if the macros are in line, I can micronutrients too. So again. If the protein is on point, the carbs and the fats, and they're still expecting, they're still experiencing cravings and hunger, then sometimes we have to look at the boring stuff like sleep, mm-hmm. stress levels, which I know this is always like big words in the health space, but really like sleep is your best nutrition. I would like to say that sleep is mm-hmm. the best nutrition. There's also research out there right. comparing people who slept five mm-hmm. hours to people who slept eight mm-hmm. hours, people who slept five hours right. had higher risk for weight gain, right. certain diseases mm-hmm. and, and all of that stuff. And interestingly, that sleep deprivation seems to not only increase your caloric intake the next day in most people because it affects cravings and, and hunger um, signals, but also seems to to create this scenario where you are preferentially storing visceral fat. So mm. the fat around the organs, which is the kind of more dangerous fat. Um, so that's interesting. That's super interesting. So you want to make sure that all of these bases are lined up first because before you go to the tactics. So making sure you sleep seven to nine hours. And again, like I know some people, sometimes life gets busy and you can't sleep as much. So I totally understand that. Try to get it as high as possible and make sure nutrition is in line. Um, and then some tactics can be, firstly, try to add more volume to your meals. So volume obviously is going to fill up your stomach and make you feel fuller and more satisfied. So the easiest way to do that without adding too much extra calories, which you maybe want to keep in check, is by adding more vegetables, right? Adding more broccoli, more spinach, um, more kale, low calorie, Mm -hmm. but high volume foods, which give you a lot of bang for your buck. Mushrooms. Um, Mushrooms are amazing, actually. That's Mm -hmm. a good point. And just packing all of those Mm -hmm. in your your meals. And actually interesting, just a quick tactic as well. What I like to do when I start my journey to to a six pack, when I have a shoot coming up or for summer, I like to not eat as much volume initially because I'm already, I'm just starting my diet and I'm still fresh and I'm excited and motivated and my body can get rid of a lot of fat. And then as I get closer to this leanness level where hunger is going to be more prevalent, I start increasing my fiber. So Mm -hmm. When I have my fiber and my veggie intake too high from the beginning, I'm kind of used to that. 
So then it doesn't have the same effect if I increase it later on, on, on mm. my journey. So interesting. That's that's yeah. one of the tactics you can definitely. Do you like bake cauliflower? Yes. Do, you ever do that. I that's love a good that. One too. That's yeah. a great one. Just put a few spices and cayenne pepper, paprika, garlic, onion powder, all that sort of stuff. Bake the cauliflower. Delicious. It's delicious. Actually, I was surprised. I think also I think it's a one restaurant called Woods here in Bali, mm-hmm. where has like cauliflower. Um, I think it's steak or like just a, like one cauliflower. Yeah, I was like, let's see how satisfying this is. Actually, really satisfying and really taste as well. So um, you can definitely work with veggies to increase your volume. Um, you can definitely also have some. So when it comes to losing fat, you definitely want to have whole foods and want to make sure you don't have too much processed food. But sometimes it's helpful to have some sweets in your diet as well and not be too afraid of them. So maybe having an Oreo cookie here, maybe having a high protein vegan dessert recipe that you use so you can lower those cravings too. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have sugar and salt and oil right. for your whole journey, at some point your body's going to start craving it. And then you maybe have this bridging attack and one day mm-hmm. where you eat all of these, all of this junk food because you didn't have any mm-hmm. sugar for like two months straight. So I like to have, I like to give our clients an option as well. And for me, I said to, to have a little bit of sweets and treats here and there that mm-hmm. fits into the framework. So they can just feel like, hey, it's a lifestyle mm-hmm. and I'm not completely right. restricting myself. So m- sort of moderating the intake rather than exclusion or complete restriction. What would you say to someone that says, okay, but if I have that, those Oreos, they're in the cupboard. It's a good point. Yes, it's a good point. That's that's actually, for me, what works is not having it at home. So I can see the argument where, hey, I'm buying this package to have one a day. It can be, yeah, it can be a trap. But also, I think kind of when you show yourself, hey, I can have these foods and you can have them in your cupboard, then it really becomes the lifestyle at that point. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are still in this, in this diet on and diet off mindset where, okay, for the next three months, I'm committed, I'm getting lean for summer, which, which is great. But then afterwards, they're going back to normal and then it's just this endless cycle. But mm-hmm. if you can have these foods around you, Mm-hmm. all the time and you can kind of make it work then you're like wow like I can eat whatever I like to and still be healthy mm-hmm. yeah I think that's the that's the end goal that we all want right there if you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease the leading cause of death globally you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer.
get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. While the guidelines across the world, whether for cardiovascular disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, etc., clearly recommend plant-based dietary patterns that de-emphasize animal protein, there is a small but vocal section of the interweb working hard to convince people we have it all wrong. And that in fact, we should be eating a low-fiber, low-carb, animal-based diet. Is there any merit to this way of eating? Why are there anecdotes of people reporting that eating this way improved their health? While on face value, all of this may seem a little conflicting or confusing, when we take a step back, it's relatively easy to explain. I've learned some things from the likes of Paul Saladino and his community. Yeah, go on. Let me hear this. Uh, and and I, I would say that uh, not directly, but indirectly. Mm. So I think that it cannot be denied that a carnivore-style diet, because I think where people listening to this might be getting confused is they might think, well, hang on, I know someone that adopted a carnivore diet, all meat, and they feel great. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I've seen that as well, and I think that you'd be a silly, foolish person to deny that there are certain people out there who are achieving at least short-term benefits yeah. in removing some uh, plant foods and probably a lot of ultra-processed foods from their diet and going to a sort of all carnivore or animal, very animal-based diet. And I think that this is actually completely explainable in the literature. Mm. And I, I'm really uh, excited. We're recording this uh, ahead of me releasing a conversation with Justin and Erica Sonnenberg. But I, in that conversation, there was on the microbiome, they're two leading uh, researchers from Stanford University, microbiologists. They've actually spent a lot of time with the Hadza mm-hmm. um, and they have a book called The Good Gut. Uh, but I, I think that a lot of this comes back down to dysbiosis and disruption of the microbiome. Mm-hmm. And what, we're, what we've seen is that 
uh, as a result of living in a modern industrialized world with over-sanitization, ultra-processed food consumption, that all these foods lack a lot of fiber. Uh, there are other um, lifestyle influences, you know, uh, perhaps unnecessary use of antibiotics or overuse. Mm -hmm. We've seen this very damaged microbiome. And with that damage, you lose bacteria that are capable of breaking down fiber. Mm -hmm. You've lost these fiber degraders. And you and I know that those fiber degraders, they're actually key because your gut is like a pharmacy. When the bacteria is feeding on these prebiotics, it's dispensing drug-like molecules mm -hmm. that go into your blood and affect your mood. They affect your blood glucose control. They affect your lipids. And when you have a disrupted microbiome and you lose that capacity, you're missing out on those rewards. Mm -hmm. However, we also know that if you are, if you are, uh, if you have the disrupted microbiome, just putting in a whole lot of fiber and plants may not fix it for a lot of people. And it might actually increase inflammation. Mm -hmm. And we know that from a recent study, the fermented versus fiber food study, where a certain percentage of people adding fiber to their diet, it actually made them worse. Mm -hmm. And you might rev up inflammation. And so people with these inflammatory conditions might actually feel worse by adding more plant foods, whole plant foods. And and you and I work with people. I, I've received this feedback. I know that certain people, mm -hmm. when you get them to eat more whole plant foods, at least initially, they don't feel so great. No. And so there is a role for elimination style diets. Right. And that is saying, okay, we've got these triggers that their microbiome is compromised. They're not handling. It's revving up inflammation. When we take those out, we can help settle them down. Mm. And I think that's what's happening with the carnivore diet. Yeah. You're seeing people that are removing all these foods. They do feel better. I would just caution against thinking that that is a dietary pattern that's going to serve you best for the rest of your life. Mm. What I would say is you want that pharmacy in your gut firing again and mm. dispensing those, those drug-like molecules that are uh, maybe not essential for survival, but they are essential for health span. Yep. And so uh, that then the, the question is how do you help that person reshape their microbiome and get back to a position where they can degrade these the, the fiber yeah and i think that's 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 a really uh, fun and interesting area that we need few, more science to explore so we know what are the best protocols mm -hmm. is it that they need certain probiotics or do you introduce fermented foods first yeah. uh, or do you introduce polyphenols which we know we act as, as prebiotics but maybe aren't as fermentable and cause bloating and gas mm -hmm. and trying to 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 structure a program that allows them to get plant diversity back into their diet and so my, my message to people would be, you may have experienced benefit on the carnivore diet, you may have friends that have, but think about it as an elimination diet. Yep. There, is, there is a very uh, logical explanation for why you would feel better, yep. but based on all of the science we have, eating those foods at, at a high exposure level long term mm. is probably not going to serve you well in terms of colorectal cancer risk, cardiovascular disease risk, uh, dementia, and, and so on. So if someone's on a carnivore diet for, say, one year, two years plus, and they're eating zero fiber, mm -hmm. what do you think happens to the gut microbiome over a two-year span of just eating meat? Well, I think they'll lose diversity. We know that. We know 
we know uh, a few things. We know we know uh, overall people that have more unique plants in their diet have greater diversity yep. than people eating you know, fewer, 10 or fewer. People that have 30 or more unique plants in a week have much more diversity in their microbiome. Mm. And, what, sorry, interrupt. What about total number of microbiotic cells or whatever, whatever you I'm call not sure it? On, on total counts. I wonder if the count would go down. Or, or does it just create this dysbiosis, like you said, where it's yeah. a lack of diversity and you have like a dominant? Yeah, well, you it may not go down the total count, but you might have more pathogenic inflammatory bacteria. Right. And we have seen that. So there was a, and this was, you know, it was a five day, so it's a short term, but they looked at an all animal based uh, diet versus a plant-based diet. Oh, really? And not many people speak about this. It was published in Nature, leading leading journal in the world. And just in five days of going to an all animal-based diet, and this was mainly um, red meat, there was some white meat, I think. Uh, there was also some uh, some salami and stuff in there and eggs mm -hmm. and some cheese. Uh, just in five days of going to that, it, it, it resulted in a significant increase in pro-inflammatory bacteria. Interesting. And a, a type of bacteria called Biophilia wadsworthia, which is um, a bacteria that we see with inflammatory bowel disease. Wow. in increased numbers. So um, I, I'm not sure to answer your question what mm. happens to total count, but mm. I think what would definitely happen is you'd lose diversity and you might see increased numbers of pathogenic bacteria which are some, somewhat outnumbering the health healthy bacteria. Mm -hmm. And that's what we call dysbiosis. Yeah, interesting. So it, in a sense, if you do go on a carnival diet or you know what we think as some kind of elimination diet, it's sort of like if you're fasting, your symptoms can go away, right? Like if, mm -hmm. if anyone just stops eating, let's say you've got gut gut uh, disturbances or you have symptomatic gut disorder and you fast for long periods, when you don't have that food coming in as that signal to the gut, your symptoms can go away. So it yeah. kind of acts in a way like you're, in a sense, fasting because you're not having fiber coming through the tract. One of the interesting things though to think about here, and this is where I think the Sonnenbergs are are somewhat, I guess, worried about a diet that doesn't have fiber, mm. is that there's a mucosal layer that's very important between bacteria and your uh, intestinal cells. And it, it acts like a fence mm -hmm. between neighbors. So it's stopping things getting through that otherwise shouldn't and allows things to get through that should. Maybe a gate is a better way of describing it. Yep. And uh, what happens is that that mucosal layer is actually made up. There's some carbohydrates in there. And so if you starve your, uh, your microbiome of fiber, mm -hmm. bacteria start eating the mucosal layer. Wow. They literally eat your body. Right. And so- Because those bacteria want carbohydrate as their food source. Right. And so thin, wow. and thinning of that mucosal layer over time can then, can then contribute or, or result in the movement of particles, uh, inflammatory molecules- right. Into the bloodstream, which is a problematic long term. Right. So this is why microbiologists wow, and even registered dietitians, when you think about elimination diets, yeah. they're short term. Mm. Low FODMAP diet, carnivore diet, all of this stuff really should be thought about as a, a short term intervention. Interesting. It's common to hear instant dismissal of nutrition recommendations based upon the fact that industry, both big pharma and big food are often funding scientific studies. I asked Dr. Alan Flanagan how we should think about this. So what about guidelines, <laughs> consensus positions, mm. and freedom of speech? So mm. 
Let's take an example of ApoB or LDL cholesterol, mm -hmm. and Paul Saladino often does videos saying that he doesn't think it's it's a problem at all as long as you're sort of yeah, quote yeah. unquote metabolically healthy yes. and don't have insulin resistance, right? I think I represented his position pretty well there. Yeah, um, but it's not complicated. Yeah, yeah, it's not a complicated message. It's one that he recycles over and over, but he creates a lot of doubt, right? Yes. Whereas the um, very well established consensus position that probably 99, I don't know percentage, but I'll, the great deal of yeah. cardiologists, pretty much everyone would accept. I don't accept. know anyone in academia that wouldn't accept it. Right. So in that sort of case, right, is, is that, is it fair game to just be pushing out that kind of information through social media that could be very much to our knowledge harming people? And do you have a problem with that? And should that be censored at all? Oof. So, so I think I generally am. Um, although I, 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 I despise every fiber of Paul Saladino's being really? because of the information <laughs> that he's putting out and the fact that people will have cardiovascular events and likely die because of his information if they follow it over time. Um, the problem is using i become i think covid has given us a really a, lo a lot of learning points a lot of things that we can sit back and, and think about and one thing that i've been interested in is how do we learn from covid when it comes to kind of the communication of consensus or as it relates to science and how do we not use science to me exists in service of the public good and and the public good across both the health of the public and also the development of 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 society. So, and that's why, for example, you know, a lot of the kind of ivory tower practices in academia and absurd charging by you know some publishing companies like you know fifty quid to get a journal article. Right. I'm just like, mm -hmm. like I will always want to publish open access. Right. Right. But I, I think COVID gave us a lot of learnings of what can go wrong when science is communicated as very didactic yeah. um, when governments abuse the role of scientists and kind of blame anything on them when it suits them but then also say we're following the science mm. otherwise and when consensus is used to ram down people's throats mm. a certain point of view and I think we saw that with with a number of, of, of issues that played out over the course of the pandemic that should really make us learn from that as far as communicating this stuff goes. Um, I think the more that science is seen as didactic, kind of authoritarian in a sense, mm, it's probably yeah. not the right word, but, yeah. you know, um, paternalistic. Yeah. You know, we, we're, we're the scientists, we've come to this consensus now, shuttle up now and, and, right. and run mm. along and do what we say. That's a disastrous route to take. Yeah. Mm. A little bit so, more education and trying to yeah. teach people about yeah. the, the findings and empowering them. Yes. For, for, someone, for someone like a Paul Saladino, you know, we have this overwhelming consensus in, in this example of within cardiovascular sciences, right? That consensus hasn't been arrived at just because a bunch of scientists are nodding along with each other and it's just this big circle jerk of everyone that wants to come to this conclusion. Mm. You know, 10, 15 years ago, even the people now who have put their names to posit were, were saying, well, maybe LDL isn't the full story. And there was all this interest in HDL and there was the CETP right. inhibitor phase where we were like, oh, let's develop drugs to get HDL up. And that didn't work. And, 
and the story evolves. So, but the, and there's nothing wrong. There's with nothing. This is science doing dive, its exactly. work, you know. So people yeah. arrive at this consensus coming from different places. So consensus in science, I think, is really powerful when the best and brightest in a given field come together and pen a paper saying, this is what the, the best representation of the right. evidence. But the question then is, how do we communicate that to the wider public? Mm. For people like Paul Saladino, they're never going to, their whole world view, I'm, I'm becoming more interested now, not in the stuff they say, but in understanding the cognitive underpinnings yes. of people like that. Um, you know, and we know from conspiracy, conspiracy theory research that narcissism is a big driver. Yeah. They're obsessed with the idea that they're the kind of one that can see through everything right. and see past the experts mm -hmm. and the, the real truth. Right. But their followers also fit this demographic. Mm -hmm. So I think censoring them probably isn't the right angle. Again, I think there will always be people who will just believe that and follow it. Mm. The question then becomes, for everyone else, if we assume that there's always going to be a Saladino and a certain tribe that follow a, mm -hmm. a Saladino, and then we assume that there'll always be obviously a science-based side and enough people that are literate enough to kind of know that's the side to fall on. If we've got this silent majority, how do we best communicate consensus or the, or, or the current best available evidence that we have yeah. to that population in a way that helps them understand yes. which side to fall down on. Yes. And, and I think there's a lot of learnings from COVID on that, both in terms of like the mask thing, for example. Yeah. Oh, but the experts said we didn't need masks. It's right. like, yeah, at the time. That's also, that's an important thing. And same with back to HDL is the understanding that science is an evolution mm -hmm. and it's about reducing uncertainty. Mm -hmm. yeah. And just because things may evolve and a position may change over time. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly that's what science is meant yes. to do, yeah. right? Yeah. It's a discovery process. And in the case of HDL, it's not that scientists were wrong. It's yeah. that there was a hypothesis at the time. Yeah. And with continued science, that hypothesis was further tested. Yes. And then it was it was actually proved, yeah. well, maybe maybe it doesn't stand that raising HDL is protective and perhaps it's more just an association yes. rather than a causal factor. Exactly. And it's good to ask the question. Right. Yeah. That's the most important part is if there's no bad questions, really. If you think about it, there's no. got to be everything. Sh we should be able to look into everything. Unless you're Unless. what they call jacking off on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Have you heard this? No, it's, it's like so uh, just yeah. asking questions to yes. sort of plant mis misinformation. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. But I think that COVID exposed, I think, what happened to the general public with the antitrust towards yes. science? Yes. It's it's never been this bad. No. COVID made it so that we mm. cannot trust any single person in authority. Mm -hmm. Science is garbage. But then Yeah, the, the scientists are, are working scientists are for working government for some or whatever. The irony is these same people use science at some point to try to prove their position. Mm. Salvino yeah. does it as well. And, and whether they like it or not, the reason that I'm able to be here with you now is because science put a vaccine in my arm. <laughs> so whether, again, yeah. there's, there's, there's a Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of what's now become a truism of, you know, E equals MC squared yeah. is true whether you want to believe it or not. And that is a reality. When we have methods that science gives us, there are things that we can know and, and they are the closest thing to an approximate truth that we have whether someone believes it or not. Mm. So whether someone thinks that the vaccines were all a big conspiracy and blah, 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 that that opinion doesn't matter. It does for them and their decision-making, sure. but it doesn't 
change the reality of in, in just to use that example i think i think i think there's two ways that we can maybe think about this kind of idea and this is an analogy i've used before uh, between a kind of scientific method and, and a general critical thinking method that we hope people use versus like an anti-science method and, and it relates to the point you both made about like things asking questions and things moving forward so the, the true scientific method is a forward-moving iterative process mm-hmm. of we start with a question, test a hypothesis, get an answer, and you're moving forward, discarding bits that have not shown to be true, mm-hmm. refining bits that have, and it's this cumulative process of, of understanding and a cumulative mm-hmm. process of moving forward closer to an approximate mm-hmm. truth. What the likes of Saladino or anyone that's very kind of anti-science, essentially it's the reverse process. Mm-hmm. So they're starting from a preconceived conclusion and then they're working backwards, building what I call their belief scaffolding. Right. So they're, they're, they're erecting the scaffolding of belief around them with any mm. shred of information that they can use, mm. even if it's something that's a half-truth that they're able to take, add it to their belief system right. and basically build this structure around them. Yeah. And, and, and then what we're saying is that our job is to come and dismantle that structure for them. And every line of evidence that we have really in, in, in terms of how people make decisions and change their mind shows that that doesn't work. Doesn't work. Mm. And often actually it reinforces yeah. and makes them build stronger scaffolding. So right. mm. again, I think the question becomes, how do we take the person that may be there before they've started moving backwards? Right. Um, and I don't, I don't have good answers to that yet, but I think, again, like I said, I think, I think COVID can teach us a lot Mm. about how we communicate this stuff to the public. Being chronically stressed out is no bueno for our health, but it's become increasingly evident that certain forms of micro stress, often described as hormesis from activities like exercise and sauna and consuming plant defense compounds like polyphenols activates disease resistance pathways, which builds resilience and promotes long-term health. Someone who knows a thing or two about the importance of good stress is neuroscientist, exercise physiologist, and author of Death by Comfort, Paul Taylor. When we spoke and caught up, you you mentioned that exercise and the stress of exercise Mm. can help you be more resilient outside of Absolutely. And this was my first insight. So after that, it was maybe a week or so later, something happened to me that I would have normally found stressful. And it was just like water off a duck's back. Mm. And then another thing happened and I thought, whoa, this is interesting. And I started to asking other people who I knew were on the course and they said the same thing. And that's when I, because I'd done a master's in exercise science, I knew that exercise is fundamentally good for us because it's a stressor, Right. You put your, your body under stress, whether it's a cardiovascular stress of out running or biking or rowing, or it's a mechanical stress of lifting weights, mm-hmm. which you clearly do a bit of, right? And it's the stress of exercise that initiates that tissue remodeling, mm-hmm. right? So there are upregulation of stress response proteins that drive these changes at a biochemical level that make us ultimately bigger, faster, stronger, better. So for the same level of stress, you're better able to, to tolerate that. Absolutely. So, and, 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 you know, people get it, you know, you, 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 if you've been unfit, you go out for a run and you're just blowing out your ass, right? And you're, you're really struggling. 
And then you do that run again and it's maybe a little easier, but you do it five, 10 times, all of a sudden it's getting easier. Same with, with weights, resistance training, right? And, and this is one of the biggest problems that people have when they're designing their own exercise programs is that they find something that they like and they do the same thing over and over again, right? Mm. One of the fundamental principles of exercise physiology is that of progressive overload. You need to progressively overload the system in order to stimulate adaptation, mm -hmm. right? So it's the, it's the extra level of stress that drives adaptations. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, we became the dominant species on earth, largely, not exclusively, but largely because we adapted better to stressors in our mm -hmm. environment, right? And one of, one of the, the best things that we did is that we traded off strength and power for dexterity, right? So a gorilla, if a gorilla was to hit me or you, mm. they would hit us with 16 times the force right. that we could hit them. Wouldn't take them on a, in an arm wrestle. No, absolutely not. However, the next time you're at the zoo, uh, and this is lost a little bit in the podcast, but you just go up to it and you do that, right? Where you are touching your fingers to, to your thumb and you will mess with the gorilla's head because they don't have opposable thumbs, mm. right? So we traded off all of that strength for dexterity in our, in our fingers, which meant that we could manipulate things, right, with fine motor control in our fingers and the amount of nerve endings that we have there. And that made us able to make tools. So our ancestor 2.4 million years ago, Homo habilis, um, the tool maker, right? Mm -hmm. And that then enabled us to create weapons and to tools mm. and to improve our environment or how we uh, functioned in our environment. And then um, 1.8 million years ago, we stood up Homo erectus. And that was actually fundamental um, to our development as a species. Because when you're in savanna grasslands, um, when you stand up, mm. you can actually see over the grass. You can see predators, you can see prey. And the other thing that it does is that if you've ever done burr crawls, you know burr crawls mm -hmm. as, as an exercise? Yeah, they're tough. They're really, really tough, right? Um, going around on four limbs is a lot more energy mm. hungry than bipedalism. So walking on two legs actually uses a lot less energy and it frees up energy to create a bigger brain. Mm. What anthropologists think is sometime around then we created fire. And that helped us to unlock nutrients. Mm. Cooking meat, cooking vegetables, plants unlocks a lot of their nutrients, mm. enables us to have more energy to develop to a brain. So there's this thing called the expensive tissue hypothesis. You look at, at every species and the size of their brain is limited by the amount of calories that they can mm. actually spur for the brain because it's the most hungry we have a lot of calories available today. We Does do. that mean our brains are going to get busy? <laughs> Unfortunately <busier>? not. <laughs> I like your thinking, and if only that was the case. We are now overfed and undernourished, mm. as you well know, right? But but this whole thing about, and so, so we adapted better than mm. any other species, but actually um, being able to move for long periods of time actually was a, a real benefit to our species because we could hunt and gather and we could, um, and particularly if you're hunting prey, like if, if you're on in the African savanna, if you look at the way that the Maasai or any of those tribes, they, they kill their food, 
the, an antelope, they'll just, they'll just run it down. Mm -hmm. So the antelope can run much faster, but if you run at a steady pace, it's got to look around, oh, they're still going and they got to keep running, they keep running. Animals, the only way that they can cool down is by panting, mm. right? And if you, have, you make them trot, they can't pant, they overheat, they fall over and they walk up and they stick a spear in it, right? Mm. But it also gives the ability to um, hunt or gather far and wide, lots of plants and stuff like that. So so in, anyway, and that and the fire unlocked those nutrients, helped us to have the bigger brain, made us smarter. And, and research that just came out the other day showed that, and it was a very clever study, that Neanderthal, um, where they actually incubated those in uh, the, the brain uh, um, cells in a test tube dish, and, and it was pretty magic science by how they did it. But anyway, they showed that Neanderthal brains don't make as many, many neurons. So that's how we outcompeted the Neanderthals was our smarts, right? That ability for us to develop this big brain mm was hugely important for our species, but we adapted to stress, right? right? And that is really, really key, is that there are a number of things. We're going to focus on exercise, but there's also things such as heat and cold stress mm. that, that, we, um, uh, that there are mechanisms, biological mechanisms that are conserved across species and across evolution that we benefit mm -hmm. from exposure to heat and cold. And there's amazing stuff, I'm sure you've covered mm -hmm. this on your podcast, that, that there are changes in gene expression mm -hmm. whenever you become overly hot like in a sauna or you go into a cold, cold water mm -hmm. or an ice bath or even a cold shower that upregulate protective genes. And it comes from these stress response proteins. They're the things that are the common link between exercise, heat exposure, cold exposure, and intermittent fasting mm -hmm. that actually upregulate protective genes that improve your health, physical and mental. Is another one of those kind of uh, sort of micro stressors, some of the, the sort of plant defense compounds Absolutely. that like certain polyphenols yes 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 and and here's the thing that a lot of people talk and it does my head in when people talk about <laughs> antioxidants right there are things such as sulforaphane mm -hmm. that, that i'm sure you're aware of that's in broccoli and kale and brussels sprouts that whole family of cruciferous vegetables right um allicin in garlic, onions, leeks, chives, right? EGC and EGGC and, and other things that are in teas. Uh, and there are a, a whole list of what we call hermetic polyphenols or hermetic phytochemicals, right? So these are, um, a lot of people talk about resveratrol that mm -hmm. you get in grapes and red wine. And, and, and I've heard people talking about their antioxidants. They're not antioxidants, right. they're poison. Mm. They are small doses of poison, and as you're aware, they are very prominent in the in the leaves of the plant, and they are defense mechanisms against insects. Mm. So when an insect eats it, it actually triggers, and Mark Matson showed this 10, 15 years ago, it actually triggers uh, in the mouth, it realizes it's a toxin signal to the brain, and there's an aversion response that says, don't eat it. But because we are much bigger, when we eat these these plants, um, we actually just create a mild metabolic stress at a cellular level. That upregulates right. your, and um, I like to simplify things, right? Um, when people take antioxidant supplements, 
it's like your cells are being guarded by dad's army. Mm-hmm. When you eat those hormetic polyphenols or phytochemicals, you upregulate your own special forces right. soldiers, right? Superoxide dismatures, catalase, glutathione perioxidase. Mm-hmm. These are the, the special forces for your antioxidant defense system, right? And this is hormesis in action. Mm-hmm. Hormesis is, is described as sublethal exposure to stressors or toxins, which at high levels can kill us, at low to moderate levels induce stress resistance. That's a really important point, right? Because, so for example, sulforaphane, I think it yeah. activates NRF2 pathway. Yes, correct. So then you get the production of glutathione, yep. which is an antioxidant. Yep. Um, so these, these compounds have the capacity to get your body to produce its own antioxidants. Yes. But there, there is some rhetoric out there that simply because these plants contain what we'd call defense compounds, yes. that they shouldn't or, or they can't be part of an optimal diet at all. It's complete and other nonsense. And, uh, so a lot, a lot of the paleo, the carnivore guys, you know, you know they talk about this. This, this, is, this is about the dose making a poison, right? So if you were to eat a ludicrous amount of this stuff in a concentrated form, then it could have a negative effect. But the amount of plants that we consume, they have hormetic mm. effects, right? right? And so we know. That, but this is the danger when you take a compound and you isolate it and you take it as a supplement, right? Sure. And you take high doses of it. Like we're seeing now that, that for a number of things, a number of drugs like rapamycin, which would appear to be pretty good in anti-aging, but too much actually mm. accelerates aging, right? So there, there's a lot, of, and, and it's, it's all explained by hormesis. Mm. Right? It's an important point, thresholds matter. Absolutely. Thresholds for sure matter, right? Mm. You get too little sunlight, you will get vitamin D deficiency and it increases your risk of huge amounts of chronic disease and destroys your brain. You get too much sunlight, um, you, you can get cancer, right? Um, it is about the dose, right? You do too little exercise, shit house for you. You do too much and we're talking ridiculous amounts that that you can actually kill yourself. Mm. Right. So it's sublethal exposure to intermittent stressors. That is the key. The word mitochondria gets thrown around a lot on podcasts and social media today. Mitochondria are the power factories within our cells that enable our bodies to take fats and convert them into ATP, energy that our body requires to function. In this conversation, Professor Kieran Rooney from Sydney University, an absolute crowd favorite over here at The Proof, talks to us about why having more mitochondria is beneficial to our health. But I'm, I'm interested in, in sort of how does having more mitochondria actually translate just to better overall health and say longevity? Yeah, yeah. Great question. So, <laughs> so if you've got more mitochondria, it's more likely then that you've got a greater capacity not to produce these free radical molecules that we know are going to go around, destroy membranes and increase rates of aging and things like that. They also interfere with energy transfers. So you've got better energy coupling or efficiencies, as they say. Um, but also what you're doing is you're reducing the stress, I'd argue, you're reducing the stress on all the other metabolic systems, right? So... More mitochondria around means that, and in the world of metabolic flexibility, it means that you're running more of fat in fasting, mm-hmm. right? But it also means your capacity to shift fuels in times of different stresses is greater, mm-hmm. right? If you've got no mitochondria around, all you've got is glycolysis. Yep. 
right? If you've got mitochondria around, you've now got a choice. Mm. I can do glycolysis. I can do fats. I can do ketones. I can do proteins. That's the flexibility. That's your flexibility. So when you see someone with metabolic syndrome and you you throw them on a bike at a low wattage, they tap into glycolysis rapidly. Well, they're already in glycolysis more often than not. So an individual- Even even at baseline at rest. rest. Yeah. So um, the traditional- papers of metabolic flexibility, one of the hallmark indicators were I bring you in after an overnight fast. If your RER, your respiratory exchange ratio yep. or your RQ, RQ your yeah. respiratory quotient is yeah, is over 0.9, yep. you're burning you're carbs, carbs, man. Yeah. So you're not burning that any fat at all. VCO2, VO2 ratio, yeah, right? that's right. Over one or, or 0.9, glucose, 0.9. you're a glucose burner. Yeah. You're probably going to have lactate as a byproduct. Is yeah, that, yeah, more likely. Less than 0.9, Easier to burn fats. You've sort of got more of that. You've got a little bit of a mix, yeah. Okay. The, the hard, fast rules are we want to see you somewhere in the po- high point seven. Point seven, yeah. Yeah, okay. right? Um, if you're in the point eight, there might be a little bit of protein burning going on gotcha. in there as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we would bring you in after an overnight fast and already at that point we're going, all right, you've got a system that's running on carb. And then we could put you on yeah. a bike. And there might be a subtle decrease in RQ as you yeah. start burning more fat, but it won't be as pronounced as somebody who's metabolically flexible. Gotcha. And so the current... This current, makes me laugh. <laughs> we, we've been geeking out hard on like <laughs> testing our lactate during, you know, moderate intensity workouts. So Simon got a lactate meter. and we went, nice. to the, we went to the gym the other day. We got on a bike. We had another friend there. And at, at, at rest... I don't want to name and shame, but a friend of ours, Jeremy, he's lactate. What was it? It must have 20, been. It was no, 20, no, 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 no. I think it was 12 at rest, 12 millimoles per liter. So you want to be around one, right? Or lactate at rest. Yeah. And then yeah, he, he was like at 20. Point, point at, something to one. Point, point 0.9s. Yeah. yeah. So we measured at rest. I mean, I don't want to embarrass Simon, yeah. but I was better than, than yeah, Simon. Yeah, but I would rest. expect you to be better than, than me, given your type of training. But it, it definitely inspired me to actually. Yeah. So, so we measured resting lactate. Yeah. I was around one. Simon, you were two or three. Jeremy was maybe outside of that. I was 1.9, mate. Okay. 1.9. Sorry. Sorry. No, okay. Just to clarify, it wasn't We three. then did, um, I think we did like- <laughs> No, I think I was 1.3 actually. Okay. We're just fabricating numbers yeah. now. So that's I, was, what I, was, I, I was imagine my resting lactate at 1.1 <laughs> the other like, yeah. couple of weeks ago and I was freaking out. Yeah, like, yeah. what's going on with you yeah. guys? We need to be, yeah. Anyway, yeah. We, we got on a bike for 20 minutes and we yeah. did sort of like a talk test. We, yeah. Three of us- Nice, easy pace, what felt like what we'll call colloquially zone two, which we can get into in a second. Moderate intensity, continuous, steady state cardio. We did 15, 20 minutes, easy pace. We checked our wattage. We were all very similar. We all said, let's hold about a 150 watt. Yeah. Did 20 minutes, got off the bike, retested. I was the same. I I literally Mm. had not moved, which my, my sort of assessment of that was that the intensity was so low that I didn't need to tap into glycolysis. I didn't have any lactate yeah. as a byproduct that I was using lipid or fat oxidation. That was my assessment of it. You can correct me in a minute. I feel like you're and about to. And to tie to. back to your story, that, <laughs> oh, that, would, that wouldn't be a strong enough signal to produce AMP to, no. then, to then say produce. He needs more mitochondria. The intensity was too low to get that AMP signal. Okay. Yeah, you've probably got a little bit floating around, but, but it's not, not enough to say, hey, mitochondrial more biogenesis. Powerhouse. Yeah, right. probably enough to turn on glycolysis because mm. AMP also mm-hmm. does that. Mitochondrial biogenesis. Yeah, did you like okay. that? Yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. That's that, yeah, you, yeah, you worked that one in nicely. <laughs> yeah, <thank you. laughs> so, we, we all checked our lactate. Which means um, making mitochondria. Yeah, exactly right. Genesis, creation. <laughs> yes. Bio, yeah. Uh, Very clever. Yeah. 
One less spoken about benefit of exercise is the production of compounds within muscle tissue called myokines. What are myokines and how do they affect our health? Paul Taylor walked us through this. So, so the thing that connects the sauna um, and exercise and cold exposure are heat shock proteins, right? And people go, heat shock proteins in the cold? They were just called heat shock proteins because they were first noticed in heat, right? So they're stress response proteins. They then trigger the activation of a whole host of other metabolic priority genes. These are genes that just get upregulated and improve your metabolism in your body and your brain. Now, now, what we have discovered in the last 20 to 30 years, progressively more and more, are the role of myokines. Right? So myokines are messenger molecules. So a cytokine, some people have heard of cytokines mm-hmm. now because of COVID mm-hmm. and the cytokine storm. Right? So they are, they're basically messenger molecules. So you have inflammatory and anti-inflammatory cytokines. Myokines are a subclass of, of these messenger molecules that are released in exercising muscle. We know that inside the muscle, they have autocrine and paracrine, which, which means that they, they act on the cell itself and they act on neighboring cells, but then they have endocrine effects, right? And um, like hormonal mm. effects. They spill out of your muscle. Inside the muscle, they make your muscle bigger, faster, stronger. Outside of the muscle, they get into your bloodstream and they impact on your target organs, right? So what we now know about myokines is that they improve how your pancreas functions and, and produces insulin. They improve how your liver um, processes glucose, reducing your risk of diabetes. They improve your entire immune system and how that functions. They, there are certain myokines that kill tumors as well that are protective against cancer. There are myokines that, that impact upon your gut microbiome, um, which then impacts upon all of your physical and mental health. Um, there's myokines that actually increase your bone density, your capillary networks. And then in the brain, you have um, uh, myokines, arisen um, that gets released in the brain, um, lactate that, that you get from, mm. lact- people think about lactic acid. Yeah, that actually crosses the blood-brain barrier. This lactate and triggers it, and and erythrin in through two independent pathways, trigger the release of BDNF in the brain. Mm. BDNF. I'm not sure if your listeners have ever heard of yeah, it. Yeah, it's come up on the yeah. on the on the episodes where we've spoken about uh, brain health. So BDNF is called brain-derived neurotropic factor. What does neurotropic mean? Nerve growth. We know that if you put BDNF on uh, brain cells in the test tube, they grow like crazy, right? right? It's been called miracle growth for the brain. Like fertilizer. It's fertilizer. There are, sci- there, there are drug companies all around the world right now trying to synthesize BDNF and get it into a pill form where it can be taken and cross the blood-brain barrier. The first drug company to take a patent out of that, I will sell my businesses, I'll sell my house, and I will pawn my children, and I will buy shares in that company. Until that point, the best source of BDNF is exercise. Mm. And it's related to exercise intensity. It's around lactate threshold that BDNF spikes, right? And it's really, really interesting study that um, with you put rats or mice in a water maze uh, and, and they hate water, right? So they really try very, very hard to get back. If you do prior running wheel, on, on, get them on a running wheel, um, and, and then you can take little parts of the brain and look at it and you get higher BDNF, they do better on, on memory, right? Mm. And 
And actually, I thought about this one day. This is a this is one of my hypotheses, right? Why would BDNF be a be spiked so much around lactate threshold? And then I thought, well, when would you pr produce lactate back in evolutionary times? And hunting or hunting or running away, right? So your brain makes real sense that your brain would actually release this stuff that goes, remember where this shit is. Mm, even foraging. Foraging, absolutely. Hunting, gathering, right? Mm -hmm. When you find food, boom, mm -hmm. remember where this is. Mm -hmm. So, um, or when prey, a lion jumps out to eat, remember where this is, right? So that for me makes sense and, and it was it, it was corroborated by that rat study that showed that their spatial memory actually improved right mm -hmm. so anyway I, I i digress so so the these myokines are hugely important mm -hmm. and when we lose muscle mass right and as i said three to eight percent per year and you know, by the age of 75 most people have lost half of it you've just mm -hmm. lost a whole heap of medicine and the myokines just to rewind one one bit um, they're actually being produced within the skeletal muscle? Within the skeletal muscle. Right. And they escape mm -hmm. outside of the muscle, right? So autocrine and paracrine is mm -hmm. um, impact within the cell and within the next door neighbor's cell. And are cell. they being produced mostly from resistance training or just any Both. type of exercise? Any type. It's just contracting muscle. Now, I haven't seen studies yet that are like, what's the optimal? Gotcha for the release because there's a whole heap we, we now you know there's over 600 myokines that have now mm -hmm. been discovered we only know what about 60 of them do like t two of the most important are um, interleukin-6 which is an anti-inflammatory myokine and BDNF um, um, which some people say isn't a true myokine but it, it, it is ultimately mm -hmm. downstream of myokines and um, but there are a huge amount of, of myokines that do all sorts of different things. Now, Benta Peterson is a legendary exercise physiologist, and she released a study a few years ago that showed that exercise should be prescribed as therapy for 26 different chronic diseases. So the, her lab showed that exercise can either prevent and or treat 26 of the most common chronic diseases. Can you imagine if there was a pill mm. that we could take that would simultaneously reduce our risk of 26 chronic diseases. Mm. It would be the best-selling product that human beings have ever produced, but it's free. When it comes to exercise, there's unique benefits up for grabs from different types of training, specifically resistance training, steady-state cardiovascular training, and high-intensity cardiovascular training, each providing a different and important stimulus that together create a body that's likely to experience better health for longer. But how do we combine all of this? What does a weekly program look like? Who better to ask than exercise physiologist and diabetes educator, Drew Harrisburg? Let's come back to a program. So I think you created the case for the HIT training. Um, you know, as Rooney said, that high intensity training is going to be what promotes mitochondrial biogenesis. We know that it improves VO2 max. We just spoke about the benefits of that. We also know that that's what, uh, relative to say moderate intensity cardiovascular um, continuous training, the high intensity training is what causes greater adaptation centrally. So mm -hmm. heart and arteries and um, um, you know all of these other aspects of cardiorespiratory fitness. Um, but if we're thinking about a program and we're thinking about also having some moderate intensity continuous training, 
Um, let's take two scenarios. Mm-hmm. So let's just take the first scenario is someone um, listening can can put aside 45 minutes of training a day for five days a week. That's their allocation to exercise. Yeah. I kind of want to understand, okay, if we think about high intensity, which we've just spoken about, the duration of that is actually not that long mm-hmm. um, to, to get that minimum effective volume. We think about the more moderate intensity continuous training, which does take up quite a bit of time. And then you think about strength training, which we haven't even got to a whole nother episode. But if we think about these kind of three main categories and someone has 45 minutes per day for five days a week, they have two days off where they don't train. What does their program look like? So going off the guidelines of minutes per week and modalities of training, it's, it's recommended 150 minutes of moderate intensity cardio per week, right? 2.5 hours. Two and a half hours a week. So there are many ways that you can incorporate that into your training. The, the program that I would see fitting most people, which again, I'd say this is the minimum effective dose. And I know that some people are like, well, I don't even have 45 minutes, five days a week. This is ideal. So this is for people who really can afford to, to spend, let's say during the week, all of your weekdays, you're going to find 45 minutes to work out. If you can dedicate two of those days to resistance training, you're going to get all the benefits of improving your muscle strength, which helps lower the risk of falling as you age, improve your bone mineral density. And the minimum effective dose for resistance training, if you actually want to grow bigger, is the frequency is train each muscle group twice a week. So that is sort of the sweet spot right there. So what you would do is you would have two full body workouts per week and you can space them out. You have a day or two of rest between those, right? Twice a week, full body. Can I ask you a question on those? Sure, yeah. So you've got 45 minutes to do a full body workout. Yeah. My understanding is that you want to ideally be getting sort of 10 sets in a week. Mm -hmm. For most muscle groups, there's a minimum amount of sets. Would that be... Yeah, spot on. That'd be right. Mm-hmm. So when you're creating that full body workout, yeah, this is probably a whole nother episode, but just in, in sort of high level, what, what I'm kind of hearing from you is you would, you would create that, that in a way so that you would be doing sort of five sets of a given body part in one of those sessions yeah, and then the, another five sets of that same body part in the next session, which would equate to 10 sets for the week. Right. You are correct in that the sort of the minimum dose would be about 10 sets per muscle group per week, but that's for hypertrophy. We're talking people who really want to grow bigger muscles. This for me is more of like the baseline healthy for the health, for an individual that wants to be healthy and doesn't actually care about really optimizing hypertrophy. Right. Because if you're trying to fit 10 sets per week per muscle group across two workouts and you're doing full body, Two times a week is not enough to distribute right. that, that 45 volume. minutes is not going to be long. Right. So the frequency would have to increase. You'd have to do full body maybe four or five times a week to get enough volume per mm. body part so that you get your 10 Unless sets. you work out for 90 minutes. Correct. And then you're going to have fatigue. So this is someone like, uh, sorry, mom, but this is for you. Like, <laughs> Okay. But, but then let me, let me play devil's advocate here. Yeah. So if we're focusing mostly on strength, what sort of rep range are we talking about here? Is strength a goal for this person? Because I, I would say we stick to moderate repetitions. Mm-hmm. Well, the moderate range typically is six to 12. Right. So the strength range, we would say six reps and below. 
I think for the for most people, it's unnecessary. Six to twelve is the most time efficient bang for your buck. You're going to get the stimulus. You're going to get low enough reps that you're developing that neural strength pathway. High enough that you get a metabolic stress from mm-hmm. the twelve reps. But you're not doing so many reps that from like for example, fifteen to thirty. That would be like a high rep range. So six to twelve. Six to twelve reps. But something that would be really important would be the RPE. Yes. So per exercise, we want to be getting at least three reps shy of failure, mm-hmm. right? So if you're doing a set of 12 uh, squats, but you could have got 20 reps, it's not heavy enough. you're not optimizing the stimulus. So pick a weight or a load that allows you to get within three reps of that fail point where your technique sort of right. goes. That's a fair point to terminate the set. So what I would say is you're probably only going to need to do two sets per exercise. We're going to do an exercise for your upper body pushing in both the vertical and horizontal plane, upper body pulling, vertical and horizontal. Then we've got a squat pattern and a hinge pattern. Right. So just to really reinforce that so that people are getting the best bang for their buck. Because if you've, if you've got short time, the way I see it is when you go and work out, you want to be getting the, as much results as you can, right? Right. You know, wring every bit of water out of that towel in that session. Exactly. Um, and so when, when you say three reps left, and we covered this on a previous episode, yeah. but basically when you decide that you're finishing that set, you need to be, it's going to feel hard. Oh, yeah. Right. So ha- give, give, give me an idea as to what three reps left actually feels like. So if someone that hasn't trained that much is yeah. kind of thinking, okay, I just, I'd like to some indications as to whether I'm actually taking a set to that point. Okay. So three reps short of failure is equivalent to an RPE of seven out of 10. Okay. If 10 out of 10 is I cannot do another repetition. I'm done. Right. Even if I try as hard as I can with a spotter, with seven people motivating me, screaming in my face and a gun to my head, I can't move this weight. That's a 10 out of 10. Seven out of 10 is I can feel a significant burn. My velocity of repetition has slowed down. I'm starting to grind a little bit. So it doesn't look like my first rep. And I want to stop, but I know I could probably do a few more. Mm-hmm. That's, that's okay. probably where you want to so be. So what would happen if you go into the gym and you still do your 45-minute workout, but you finish everything on an RPA of five. So very mild burn, not, not much, and you had quite, quite a lot of reps. Like, are you still going to get some benefit? Yes, you, you definitely will, uh, depending on your rep range, of course. Um, but yes, you will get benefit at five reps in reserve. Are you optimizing it? No. And if you really want to get you know, better and better and progressively overload, over time, you're going to have to get closer and closer to that zero reps in reserve. So essentially, like if you're programming intelligently, you'll increase your volume over time, but you'll also have workouts where you do go to, to failure. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do, if you train in failure all the time, you're just going to burn out over time. We, we spoke about it on, on a previous mm-hmm. study that we brought up on an episode before, chronic failure training, yeah. what it does to the body. But essentially, we're going in twice a week, full body workouts, and we, the, the workout density here is important. So I would, I would structure this. It's called agonist-antagonist supersets, which is just a fancy way of saying you're going to pair together exercises that are opposing muscle groups. So like pushing and pulling muscles. When the pushing muscles are resting, the pulling muscles can work. So that allows you to be very time efficient. You Get more squeeze volume more in. in that 45 minutes. Correct. Like if you just did everything and rested for one to two minutes per exercise, 
well, you're missing out on that one minute of rest where you could be doing muscles that are fresh and you're not going to tax mm-hmm. the muscles that you just worked. So you're gonna, we're going to pair them up in supersets, push, pull, push, pull, maybe legs core, and we're going to just crank out 45 minutes straight, couple exercises, uh, sorry, a couple sets per exercise. We're going to do that twice a week. On your other days, you're going to do cardio, right? So we've done two days of resistance, three days of cardio. Here, we're going to combine the moderate intensity and the HIIT training into the one session, but we're going to do our moderate intensity training first for, for, let's say you've got the 45 minutes, right? 40 minutes on the bike. And for your last five minutes, four minutes, whatever you want, you're going to do that HIIT bout that we just spoke about. So 40 minutes at moderate, that's at a heart rate that we've also predetermined based off the calculations. At the end of that 40 minutes, it's time to crank up the resistance a bit, increase that RPM if you have to, and f- try to get the heart rate over 85%, hold that for four minutes. Mm-hmm. You can do that three times a week. So we've got, you can just alternating days, you know, so resistance, cardio, resistance, cardio. So you kind of just glossed over the calculation for moderate. Did I? Sorry. Right. But I, I, I know we did a presentation on that at the retreat. Yeah. So, um, it, it's it's a hard one to kind of explain in audio. It's almost easier for people to read. Just come to the retreat in October and we'll give <laughs> yeah. you a visual no, workshop. Well, that is a good way for all of this to kind of um, be consolidated. But um, I think what we might do to so it can be a bit easier, we can we can have something in the show notes or at some point we'll put together a couple scenarios and make it as a resource. Yeah. Um, but for now, just to summarize that, you're saying so someone has – 45 minutes available for five days a week. They are looking for wanting to, to create an exercise program that is for general health and well-being, longevity. Um, so we're going to be working different energy systems and also um, training different parts of the body. So there'll be uh, these resistance training, two resistance training sessions a week, which both of them are full body yep. resistance um, training sessions that go for 45 minutes uh, each. Then on top of that, you have three days where you do a moderate intensity, intensity continuous training. So that could be sitting on the on a bike for 40 minutes, um, heart rate to to sort of um, determine or heart rate to kind of aim for is going to be roughly 60, 70, 70% of your max heart rate, but we'll provide more accurate calculations for that. Um, yeah, 65, 75, I would say is... right going to be the sweet spot there okay so that will see you probably land in zone two um but the other thing that someone could think about there is can they hold a conversation yep right we call that the talk test and you actually use that in exercise physiology a lot in like cardiac rehab wards right you you want we use that as an intensity regulator right so in that in that continuous 40 minute of on the bike you should have a bit of a sweat you're a bit puffy you can have a conversation it's not like you're just sitting like down this. and having a tea, no. but you could still have one. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of each of those, you're going to do a four-minute hit. And if you're really geeky, you can do what we did and get a lactate meter, but that's, again, yeah, that's a whole other episode. Take it too far. And um, I think that might complicate it for this, yeah. for this avatar anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, that's something maybe more for someone who's optimizing for athletic Mind you, we did talk about it with Rooney, so you can check that right. out as well. Um, but that's scenario one. Yep. Now, what about someone who has a little bit more time? So they have an hour a day and they only take one day off a week. So it's, it's still pretty close to the same time as the first one. It's a little bit bigger. 
I'm interested if that changes things. Uh, it's a little bit longer. I mean, um, I'm interested if that changes things in, in terms of programming for this person. Yeah, I think that we now have an extra day to do a third resistance training workout. Um, I've always liked that two to three times a week for resistance training as a, as a sweet spot. Um, and th there have been position statements saying that two to three times a week is, is mm -hmm. recommended where you're going to get like a lot of benefits whilst four or five times a week may not necessarily take you that much further unless you're like a bodybuilder with specific goals. But for the general population who want to be strong, build some muscle, improve their bone mineral density, two to three times a week in the gym is going to do just fine. Um, and again, I would do these as full body workouts. There are other splits you can do. You can do upper lower splits, but again, you need more frequency for those. So if you're doing an upper lower split, you'd need for probably four days in the gym would be the optimal frequency because we want to hit upper body mm -hmm. twice a week and lower body twice a week. But here we've only got three days. Let's go full body again. The exact same thing with a day off in between. Right. When I say day off, I'm not saying a day of complete rest, but we can do the cardio on those days again. So we, we'll have those three moderate intensity uh, continuous training days where we're in the zone two on a bike or whatever mode you want to do it on. Or if you don't mind training a certain body part on a different day of the week each week. Right. You could turn that into an eight-day week. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We talk about this in seven days, but you could, it's called asynchronous training where instead of just starting every uh, week on that Monday workout, it'll look different each week. If you do it in eight days. And then take an eight-day block. That could be push, pull, legs. Correct. Yeah. Push, pull, legs, upper, lower, full body, or you could do a total bro split where you just pick a muscle group and, and hit it in one go. But Okay. I, I do think if, if we're just simplifying it for minimum dose, three resistance trainings a week of full body, three cardios of moderate intensity, at the end of those zone twos, you can throw on that, that four-minute interval of hit at the end. But we've also now got another opportunity to do a hit day where, where there's a specific day that we're going to absolutely dedicate to hit training where we can get those four four-minute intervals, right? So you can add in that extra day if you want you can swap out say one of the moderates okay and got put, you and put in a dedicated four by four minute interval hit day where you're, you're sort of essentially right. giving that 35 40 minutes of hit training mm -hmm. um so there's there's so many different options and ways to do it but just think about the dosing think about what the guidelines are saying we've yeah. got those you know 150 minutes a week of moderate mm -hmm. as long as you're hitting that resistance two to three times a week at the intensity we just spoke about and at least taking one or two of your cardio workouts to that high intensity right. interval training zone, then you're covering total, your bases. The total time that you're you're spending in in moderate continuous at that you know sixty five seventy percent of your max heart rate is going to be much longer than the time you're spent at the ninety percent heart rate doing hit training. Exactly right. Intensity duration trade off. If you're able to do hit for sixty minutes. You're not doing hit. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. It's meant to be so difficult that four minutes is. Is that where the eighty twenty kind of yeah. saying comes from? Yeah. I, again, I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine at, at, when I was getting my coffee this morning, who was an ex pro cyclist, and I said to him, I "said Hey, mate, have you heard of zone two training?" He's like, "Mate, zone two. It's all we do." Like he laughed at me. He's like, "Of course, that's like eighty percent of our base." So a lot of cyclists who, although in their event they're not. At, you know, they're not cycling in zone two, they train in zone two, meaning they train at a lower intensity that's easier than, the, than what they would do in their performance. Mm -hmm. Because, and in his words, he goes, yeah, mate, that's how you build your base. 
Right. So, and when they say build their base, they that's how you shift your lactate threshold up. Right. So they're talking about aerobic base, so that that threshold where you start to produce lactate, which is very fatiguing, mm-hmm. is pushed up. So right. you, you can You can do hold more it. power yes. for a given amount of lactate. Exactly right. Yeah, perfect way to put it. My dad's mother had vascular dementia, a beautiful lady that I have many incredible memories with. But sadly, the last handful of years of her life were marred by severe dementia. The person that we knew, although they're in a physical form, had left us mentally. It was extremely sad. And today, my mother's mum, my other grandma, also suffers from vascular dementia. She's in her mid-90s, a great innings by most standards, but has progressively lost her memory and ability to recognise those around her. With that, although being looked after extremely well, with daily visits from her family, her quality of life has greatly deteriorated. And if there's one thing that I fear most, it's following in their footsteps, losing my memories and the connection with those around me. Fortunately, like most chronic diseases, while they may not be completely avoidable, there are things in our control that we can do within our lifestyle to improve our cognitive function, to keep our memories with us for longer. Globally, Drs. Dean and Aisha Sherzai top the list as neurologists, publishing research, who are also on the ground, working in the community, helping people take the science and put it into practice. So with all of that in mind, is it possible to get to, say, in our 80s, mid-90s, and feel just as sharp cognitively as we are in our 30s, 40s, and 50s? Oh, by all means. I'm going to jump in and say yes. Um, And that's not just an opinion, and we have tremendous evidence for that, um, both you know from mechanistic studies and from population studies and different lines of research showing that when people adopt a healthy lifestyle, which you know by definition, I mean there is it's a variation of the same theme, but a healthy lifestyle can definitely provide, you know, instances for the brain and for the body to repair itself and to function at its peak. Um, and mm-hmm. obviously it's not, you know, a superfood that does that. It's not a specific kind of a regimented, you know, eating pattern that does that. It's a comprehensive and a multifaceted approach to lifestyle, which includes exercise and movement and nutrition and stress management and sleep can sound overwhelming, but if all of it is done in a systematic way, absolutely the body can flourish and repair itself. Tell, um, Dr. Wareham. We have examples of such individuals. I mean, we've been really, um, we've been lucky that we worked, uh, you know, at Loma Linda um, and uh, Loma Linda is a blue zone as, you know, mm-hmm. we've talked about that in the past. And, you know, there are individuals who um, are in their 80s, 90s, even in their 100s, and they're thriving, you know, and when you look mm-hmm. at their lifestyle, it's indicative of what a healthy lifestyle can do. I mean, Dr. Wareham mm-hmm. was a surgeon in Loma Linda, and he was doing open to close surgeries till age 95, Five, yeah. right? Yeah. And after age 95, right. he decided to retire because he wanted to travel. And, mm-hmm. you know, after a very short period of illness, um, he passed away on his own terms at the age of 104, four. Four? Four. Yeah. Yeah, 104, 105. And we have examples of that. 
many examples of that too. So yes, mm. it is quite possible. I'd love to, I'd love to see some more data, and I'm sure it's coming from AHS two, or I think there's an AHS three cohort. Yes. Um, looking at neurodegenerative disease because I think from from memory I've only seen it in the AHS one cohort. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard any any plans for for the the kind of researchers looking at those, those cohorts to investigate the incidence of um, neurodegenerative diseases within that population? We, we did a paper we uh, on um, uh, Evans Health Study, a subcohort called the Religious Order Study, which was 500 people uh, who did really robust neurocognitive testing it's called California Verbal Learning, CVLT, very robust cognitive test. Um, a lot of times when you see these studies, and you look at their cognitive testing, it's not, it's like one little clock drawing or something. No, this was a really robust clock, a cognitive testing, 500 people. There's an abstract. If people look at the abstract, um, it hasn't been published, but it's an abstract. It's, it was, uh, and we saw um, uh, cognition across um, the uh, nutrition from vegan, uh, um, uh, vegetarian, pescatarian, and omnivore. So across those domains, just like that. Across those lifestyles, you saw the ones that ate more plants had better cognition than those who had less and so on and so forth. So there's already some data, an abstract that actually demonstrated that. And we're hoping that there will be more of this as well. Um, and, and then when you look at other studies, like Aisha was the lead in, in the California teacher study, which is the largest, mm-hmm. 133,000 people, mm-hmm. and you found amazing stuff. Yeah, absolutely. As far as longevity is concerned, I mean, there's a there's a direct association between a healthy lifestyle, which includes movement and exercise, and longevity in the California teacher study, as well as the Northern Manhattan study in New York at Columbia University, where my mentors conducted the research. So. It, 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 it's it's a pretty, uh, you know, um, solid statement to say that uh, movement and exercise and a healthy lifestyle leads to longevity um, and not just longevity, but um, very active years later on as well. Because, you know, one right. could live yeah. a long life, but if you're not moving and if you're in a state of disease, that's probably not helpful. No, mm-hmm. no, we want to kind of have an increase in, in years, high quality years and, yes. and not be frail but still enjoying our time. I think that's I think we're all on the same page there. Let's say, for example, you get to your thirties and you don't do any exercise, that by the time you get to your fifties, you will have lost more muscle tissue than you otherwise would have if you were doing some resistance training and you had that sort of paired with good nutrition, etc. My question to you is, let's say that someone listening is in their early 50s and they were active as a kid, you know, doing lots of school sport and sport on the weekends. Um, but then they got to their, their you know, late 20s, 30s, 40s and life got busier. They, they had children, they were working and um, their physical exercise sort of took, took a back seat. Mm-hmm. Would 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 you see any type of brain atrophy or shrinking as a result of that? And can you reverse that? So in your 50s, if you decide to really to, to take up an exercise regime, is there a capacity to restore some of that um, brain function and actually grow neurons at that stage in your life? 
The short answer is yes, absolutely. Um, so as far as neurogenesis or creation of neurons are concerned, there is evidence that we do um, have neurogenesis that occurs throughout our life um, that is propagated with two different types of activities, if I had to categorize them, with physical exercise and with cognitive activity. But the number of neurons that are generated in an adult is not as important as the connections that are created between the pre-existing cells. Mm -hmm. um, and the boost in cognitive function that we see due to exercise and cognitive activity is not because of neurogenesis. It's mostly because of that cognitive reserve or the neuroplasticity that takes place. And neuroplasticity is a term that is used for creation of these connections between cells. Um, and the numbers are incredible. They're crazy. So, you know, each neuron, we have 87 billion neurons after the process of, you know, the program cell death during childhood, we're left with 87 billion neurons. And these neurons each can make as little as two connections or as many as 30,000 connections. So you just do the math of how exponential that, that volume is. These connections are made and broken at any moment during our life, during adult life. And there's no particular instance unless somebody is left with, you know, a huge brain injury where, you know, part of the brain is completely gone. That process of neuroplasticity keeps on, you know, happening as we age. Um, and we have studies that show that when people engage in physical activities or like, let's go with the example of what you said, you know, people who are not even engaging in physical activity, if they maintain a cognitively active life, they continue to make those, uh, those, those connections. And the connections are translated in the thickness of the cortex, the gray matter, and they've done studies, imaging studies of MRI, seeing that people who actually have active lives, they actually have thicker gray matter, the volume of the hippocampus, which are the parts of the brain that... Um, that basically process memory, they grow as well. So yes, this this continues to happen throughout our life, and it's it's phenomenal to see that. Mm -hmm. Okay, and if we don't do any exercise, what happens to the brain? Do we have we kind of looked under the hood of someone who's had a a, a life of living a, a sedentary kind of lifestyle? Sedentary lifestyle can definitely be one of the main um, reasons for brain shrinkage. Um, right. We've uh, just like you gave an example of how you know muscles grow uh, during an active, physically active lifestyle, but then they atrophy when somebody's sedentary. Um, same thing happens in the brain. Obviously, there are some other factors that maintain neuroplasticity as well, but physical activity is an enormous uh, boost for creation of those connections. Right. Um, and it's because of the release of very important growth factors during physical activity, like brain-derived neurotrophic factor that essentially promotes the growth mm -hmm. of the connections between the cells and mm -hmm. also better blood flow to the brain, provide, right. providing more oxygen, et cetera. Um, and, you know, there have been multiple studies that have looked at, um, you know, individuals who are prone for having cognitive impairment and brain atrophy. Mild cognitive impairment is a stage. It's a pre-dementia stage where there is profound atrophy of the brain and there is 
um, abnormalities in specific domains of cognition, uh, primarily memory. And when patients with MCI were subjected to a regimented exercise program, specifically strength training, over time, over six months, they literally grew their brain, their hippocampus enlarged, their neurocognitive scores improved. As a matter of fact, in one study, they showed that about 47% of them were able to reverse their diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment and get back to normal again. Gosh, what was the, the prescription there? What kind of dose of, of resistance training was that once a week, twice a week, three times a week? Yes, for this particular study, um, they were exposed to three days of um, strength training. And that included things like leg press and seated rows and mostly core exercises and leg exercises. And when they did some factor analysis, leg exercises seemed to do, you know, to, to give most benefit as far as cognition is concerned. And they, they essentially followed that for six months. And at the end of the six months, they did neuroimaging and neurocognitive um, analysis and the results I, I right. mentioned earlier. Yeah. The fun thing about this particular study was that even six months, oh, actually, even 18 months later, without continuation of that regimented exercise activity, people tended to benefit from it, which means that mm-hmm. their scores actually remained high. Right. And their brain function was mm. was incredibly, um, you know, improved, which says a lot about that response after a very regimented bout of exercise that it lingers for months to years. And, and just not, just to remind, this is not just nor- individuals who, who normal individuals, not young people. These were pre Alzheimer's patients, right? MCI. Right. Every time we eat a meal, we're eating for two ourselves and the trillions of microbes that take up residence in our gut, primarily our large intestine. The parts of our food that escape digestion in our small intestine and pass through to our large intestine and feed these microbes are called prebiotics. Prebiotics can be broken down further into three main classes, polyphenols, resistant starch, and prebiotic fiber. A recent randomized controlled trial came out that suggests resistant starch may be particularly important in lowering our risk of various gastrointestinal cancers. I've got one study that uh, won't take me too long to whip through. This is actually hot off the press. Um, It's actually a very long-term study. There's been results published over um, a few different years looking at different things. Really, really interesting. It's looking, this latest study, was reporting on the effects of resistant starch on the development of cancer. So resistant starch, just to kind of refresh everyone's mind, um, is a type of carbohydrate that is not digested by us, passes through to the large intestine, and is digested by the microbes. And for that reason, resistant starch is considered a prebiotic. Just like polyphenols, well, most polyphenols are also prebiotic in nature, and prebiotic fiber. So if you think about prebiotics, the way I like to think about it is that prebiotics is an umbrella term. And underneath that, you have these three classes, polyphenols, prebiotic fiber, like inulin, and then resistant starch. And some folks may have heard about potatoes. If you cook them and then you cool them, you actually 
uh, increase the amount of resistant starch in them. Mm-hmm. It's a neat little trick. Um, anyway, so this paper, this was a randomized controlled trial uh, back, I think, 1996 it started. And it was looking at almost 1,000 people who had a syndrome called Lynch syndrome. And this is a, a hereditary condition that predisposes you to developing colorectal cancer and a bunch of other types of cancer. Um, so a really interesting group of people to study to see if you give them something, can you reduce their risk of developing this cancer that they are much more likely to develop than the average person. Mm-hmm. And they, they were interested in, there were some hypotheses about resistant starch and the effect that it might have on the development of colorectal cancer, also aspirin. Um, so they tested both of those. They had a, a randomized process, and this was conducted across the world. I think uh, 43 different clinics around the world did this. It was double-blind, placebo. Um, and so there was resistant starch, aspirin, or a placebo pill, right? You didn't know which one you were given. Mm-hmm. And you, they, they were given these um, you know, supplements, whichever one that they were randomized to, for about a five-year period, okay? And really, really um, well thought out, the researchers decided to follow up those subjects over at least a 10-year period. I believe they're still following um, the ones that are still alive afterwards because it might be that the, the taking resistant starch or aspirin might not have an effect on cancer for many years to come. It might not show in the actual period of the study so itself. So five-year intervention. Five-year intervention. And then 10-year follow-up And then they stopped. After that. They stopped taking it. Right. Right. And then they did a 10-year follow-up, which is what I've got in front of me. So I have a 10-year follow-up looking at um, what happened to these people in terms of their development, risk of developing cancer 10 years later. Mind you, they didn't continue. Right. Remember, they didn't know what they were taking. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, you know, Drew, you're in the study, you're taking resistant starch, and at the end, I tell you you were taking resistant starch and, you know, off you go and you decide to keep taking it. You didn't know. You were blinded. Yeah. Um, it was in a pill form. You weren't like, I was eating about a to say, green banana it, or something. Is it possible that people ate resistant starch unknowingly in their diet? Well, they might, but because they're randomized, you'd expect that to be evenly distributed, gotcha. right? Yep. So this is a uh, an exposure to something over and above diet. Got it. And you would expect in a group where you randomize that the the kind of diets are um, similar, right? You, you've controlled for that. Yeah. So um, what's just amazingly fascinating is that at this 10-year follow-up period, they found um, that those who were randomized to the resistant starch group had a 60% reduction in cancer incidence. Wow. And right? they started with the same relative risk? They, this was just a group of people yeah. with Lynch syndrome who were randomized okay. to the three groups. Wow. Right. So again, the way randomization works is if it's done correctly, um, that you have an even distribution of people in each group. Yep. Yep. Um, um, you know, age, BMI, any risk, other risk factors, smoking, alcohol consumption, all of that, right? Which is one of the benefits of a randomized controlled trial over epidemiology, even yep. though you, you can sort of adjust for some of that stuff. Um, So they had this strikingly large reduction. It wasn't actually colorectal cancer. It was the upper digestive tract cancers where they had saw these big reductions in Mm -hmm. in risk. Um, And there there are kind of um, 
some proposed mechanisms um, that maybe can help explain it. I think the researchers said, they said here, we think that resistant starch may reduce cancer development by changing the bacterial metabolism of bile acids and to reduce those types of bile acids that can damage our DNA and eventually cause cancer. However, this needs further research. Um, but this is just another really uh, sort of big tick for a, a, a plant-rich, whole plant food-based diet where, you know, foods that are rich in resistant starch are things like oats and barley, all of your legumes, um, rice, potatoes, as I said, particularly if you take rice or potatoes and you cook them and then let them cool, you have increasing amount of resistant starch um, in them. And there's a, a name for that process. I think it's um, starch re- retrogradation, okay. I think is, is what it's called. I can put a link to one of the papers in there. But I looked up one of the papers because I was interested. Well, if you cool the potato and then you cook it again. Does it get more resistant starch? Or, or does it go back? Well, what if it cools twice? It doesn't. Um, well, I'm not sure, but that's a good question. If you cook it again and then yeah. let it cool. I didn't see a paper that looked at that, but I did look at one that that cooked it, cooled it, and then looked at the amount of resistant starch in it, cooked it again, and if you, because if you wanted to heat your food and yeah, eat it, yeah. um, and it didn't change it, you, you still, cold you still had the increased okay. amount, um, which is, you know, really, really interesting. Essentially what happens is when you cook it, you take that carbo- a carbohydrate that is digestible yeah. and it changes its form okay. into an indigestible carbohydrate, which becomes a resistant starch. Interesting. And if you were recommending... Uh, to people, how much, how many times per week would you okay. try? Well, this study starch? was giving people a supplement of resistant starch, which was equivalent to having one green banana a day. Okay. So like a, you, you obviously know what a green banana is. Right. Right. When you buy them, which is really, <laughs> this makes me laugh. Um, this makes me laugh a lot because I saw Paul Saladino. He did a video saying that green bananas are toxic because of resistant starch. <laughs> so if uh, if a sixty percent reduction in cancer it's risk toxic. is toxic. considered I'll toxic, yeah. um, <laughs> I'll take it. Perhaps toxic isn't such a bad thing, Paul. <laughs> oh god, <laughs> oh, that is quite funny. So a green banana a day. All right, that's not right. that much. Like if you think about it, and well, you know, it doesn't have to. be Anyone who's eating a whole food plant based diet you're getting is getting that much resistant starch because oats, barley, rice, all of your legumes. These are all providing resistant starch. What if they're not um, cool though? They still contain they still have a fair it. bit, okay. um, but I do think having some some uh, potatoes that have been cooled is, sure. you know, is a is a great idea if you like them. Work them in, um, and yeah, it's just it's this is not a, a study that I'm kind of highlighting, which is going to radically change many of the listeners' diet. Sure. But it's it's helping explain I think why I think it's interesting is that um, we see diets like Mediterranean diet for example, which has arguably the most research on it. Um, time and time again, you see that that style of diet, which is very rich in plants, is associated with reduced risk of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are going to be many reasons. It's not that it's just resistant starch. Think about all of the polyphenols sure. and um, other compounds that are, are in plant foods. But this is just highlighting it's just interesting that a study looked just at resistant starch and found such a significant effect yeah um so i think that's neat i'll i'll link to that into the uh 
the show notes. So you think throwing a green banana in a smoothie would be an easy way to do it as well, right? Like, because green bananas don't taste that good, let's be honest. Yeah. They're furry, they're kind of a funny texture. Yeah. But I imagine you could mask it in a smoothie quite easily, right. throw some berries in there, something sweet, I don't yeah. know, maybe a ripe banana and a green banana. Mm. If you, you could do that. Unless, you wanna, unless you're scared of too much fructose. I agree. <laughs> I think that I think it, the, the green bananas are... Um, you know, they're not my idea no. of a. Mind you, you can get really enjoyable green banana snack. supplement. Right, you can get the resistant powder. starch powder. Right, that's available that um, most places. That's awesome. Cool study. Mm. Um, so what was that? Sixty percent reduction in in cancer risk. That's solid. They took it for six years. Yeah, and then they stopped. And they stopped, and ten years later, they had this. Improved. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Love it. Readers of my book, the proof is in the plants. Will know that there is a very strong link between the food we eat and the health of our planet. And that I'm very much of the view we should take the steps we can on an individual level to lower the environmental footprint of our diet. Show regular and environmental scientist Nicholas Carter reminds us of what's contributing to climate change and where agriculture fits within the context of all contributors. I think it would be good to just go back over some of the higher sort of high level territory on what's contributing to climate change and, and biodiversity loss, etc. Um, I'm sure that some people out there have been led to believe or have heard that, you know, really tackling climate change is about addressing fossil fuels. And the focus needs to be on the way we produce energy and, and we shouldn't be having these discussions about agriculture. And, you know, I think I'd go as far as to say is that some folks may have heard that the energy industry um, is pointing the finger to agriculture to shift some of the blame. So how do you sort of reconcile this or can you reconcile this for us? You know, when you think of, of climate change as a whole, what are the major contributors to it that, that sort of threaten our existence, so to speak? and and where do you, what sort of data are you using to, to kind of determine that? Yeah, so I think I'd start off with just saying that uh, it's absolutely true that we focused almost exclusively on carbon dioxide, mostly from fossil fuels. And there is some good reason for that. Um, this has been the biggest contributor to uh, warming from CO2. Um, and this has happened since industrialization uh, for... Uh, over 100 years. And we've seen a huge spike in increase in warming since that. At the same time, what's also true is we will not limit uh, global warming to 1.5 degrees, which is the, the Paris Agreement goal. Um, 1.5 degrees, the limit of warming since industrialization without addressing other sectors too. Uh, and then the next sector that needs to be addressed here is uh, by far agriculture. Now this is just focusing like the topic on CO2. So on CO2 alone, mm. agriculture is very, very important to, to address. Um, but I think what kind of led me to, you know, focus my career, focus everything, uh, all my work time on agriculture and food systems is, was not just that, but looking at the wider ecological impacts uh, looking at the different metrics of other ways we're doing damage to the planet. And when widening that, just for example, uh, with greenhouse gases, 
widening that to methane, uh, which is a greenhouse gas that's 86 times uh, as potent as CO2 over about a 20-year period. So it's kind of like a live fast, die young type greenhouse gas, but it's uh, very potent. Uh, and there's benefits in addressing that. If you address that very quickly, you see atmospheric effects very quickly. Where if, with CO2, we need to also bring that to as close to zero as possible. We're not going to see atmospheric effects for 100 years plus because that's how long it lasts in the, in the atmosphere. Um, so widening that lens beyond just CO2 from energy is very important for other reasons too. So can I ask you a question on that? Yeah. So the point that you're making there, just to clarify, is that um, methane is a significant opportunity with regards to mm. addressing climate change and the warming of the planet. And you're alluding to the fact that the majority of methane that we're producing is coming from agriculture. So about 40% of all human-caused methane comes directly from agriculture. Uh, more than 90% of that figure comes from ruminants and uh, manure from uh, farmed animals. Uh, a little bit also from, from rice, but a very small amount. So yeah, I'm alluding to that. There is like a close second. Like the, there is a, a number of uh, methane sources from fossil fuels as well. Um, namely, natural gas produces a lot. Mm. So I mean, this is not like an either or thing. We need to address both, but, uh, but agriculture is the number one source. One question I often get is whether or not fish is healthy. The data suggests that fish, particularly fatty fish, is likely beneficial, at least in comparison to red and white meat. Whether or not a healthy whole food plant-based diet would be better or worse with a piece or two of fatty fish a week is not really understood. But there is more to consider here. The environment. Dr. David Jenkins explains why even if fish are beneficial, the advantage is likely very small, and long-chain omega-3s can be sourced more sustainably from algae. There may be a fish effect, and it may be positive, but even if we do find it, then I do think we've got a... a, it's a we're talking about a fatty acid. We should be looking at the algal sources. We should be looking right. at the plant-based sources because, quite frankly, the disaster in the oceans is enormous. We, it is said that we will have no fish, so-called stocks, by 2050. That was before we started getting the accelerated global warming we're getting now. I mean, we've already seen the destruction of the Great Barrier Reef, which I think any Australian will know about, right. and the rest of the world should know about. We're seeing the destruction, and even they're trying to re re renew it and rejuvenate it, but it's a great difficulty. We are having great difficulty with the seas. We've over overfished um, the, the East Coast cod in Canada. It hasn't returned. It has not, 20 years later, it's not returned. So we are damaging the seas, and I think before we look for a small advantage, a small, somewhat nebulous advantage that we can get with something like fish oil, we've got to be very careful. Gathering information is a critical step in one's quest to live better for longer. Putting that information into action is another, and perhaps the step that us humans find most difficult. How can we implement our learnings, build better habits, and develop a lifestyle that's serving us better? Let's bring Fritz Horseman back to help explore this. We were speaking about habits there. Is that the kind of most critical piece you think for, for folks that are in your program and sort of 
looking at who who succeeds and perhaps those who aren't able to adhere to it. Um, how much insight do you sort of have there with regards to how impactful that home environment and social environment is in terms of them being able to stick to it uh, versus say, you know, other factors that you think are really important for developing these habits? That's a good question. I think I can definitely say that the people who are the most successful, they have a very supportive environment. So either they have a supportive family or they are single and they just can set everything up the way they want. And I think people who are struggling to make the habit changes, um, I mean, I have a pretty pretty intense story. Uh, one of our clients, she was like on a good path and crushing it, and then her husband put obstacles in her way by choice. Like he bought treats, he bought chocolate and put it in front of her, like in the cupboard and everything to make her life harder. And she, it was hard for her and she wasn't allowed to like build a, at home workout station, all that. So I think environment can make mm. make a huge difference. That's interesting. Why do you think he wanted to do that? I mean, probably I, because I'm it was you to speculate, but it was probably because he saw himself in the mirror. Like mm. she was a mirror of his habits and his actions, maybe. Right. So he looked at her, she was like losing weight, crushing it, eating healthy. Mm. They were drifting apart a little bit, perhaps too. Yeah. They were drifting apart and he was realizing, wow, I'm I'm not putting in the work, so I have to sabotage her to keep her down, mm. maybe, right? I mean, again, we're speculating, but right. it's it's interesting because the people who love you, people don't like change. So when you start changing, like your habits, you're going to the gym, you're losing weight, you're finally feeling better. Like when they see that, obviously they love you, but they don't like change. They're like, hey, you are changing. And then they want to mm. like keep you in the old habits and they put like certain identities on you, even right. like, you're always, you are always the person who eats the most or you've always been um, a foodie and all these things, these comments that you get at Christmas table or Thanksgiving, like these really stick with you when someone puts an identity on you. Mm. Yeah, it's sometimes tough to break out of that. Mm. It's like, yeah, I've always been this person, so. Yeah, you're right. Like weird. that whole, you've changed. Change is always, or not always, but very often sort of cast in a, a very negative light. But you, you mentioned before about evolving. And, you know, in, in many instances, change is, is very positive and powerful for that individual and necessary. Yes, absolutely. So if you have family or friends who, who tell you that um, they still love you, they tell you that because they love you, but then just go internal and ask yourself what's important for you and maybe what people can you add to your life that will make like, your life easier. So yeah. what, what other things, what are like the other top things that might trip people up and, and sort of see them a little bit derailed, so to speak? I think like there's a bunch of things that could happen. Obviously, everybody has. And that's interesting because I think a lot of coaches or fitness content is really like complicated and they don't realize that the normal person has a lot of people, go a lot of things going on in their life, like work, bringing kids to school. Um, there's a problem with the sink, like all these things that come before working out, right? Working out is not that normal priority or eating healthy. So acknowledging that and then looking at the obstacles and overcoming them like hand by hand would be would be the idea. What are the things I would say? Just on that before you move yeah. forward. Um, I think that point you just made then is something the science community need to 
strongly consider in study design. So when you look at all these studies and we see, because we get real no no insight into who are the subjects from a behavioral point of view. Yes, they lost weight, they regained it, but there's no qualitative information. What were their home circumstances? What were their relationships like? Um, you know, how how were things at work? Stress levels, all of that sort of stuff, would I think help fill in some of the gaps in the literature. But anyway, carry on. Love that. That's a good point. I think just I think the biggest challenge, to be honest, like I want to give you the tactical things. I want to say like snacking and like dinner and like social events. But I think the biggest thing. Is it's in their mind, it's in their head. It's I mean, mindset is this word you see online, like it's a buzzword, mm -hmm. but it's really like how you think about yourself, about your identity, and about what's what's possible. So a lot of people, I think, subconsciously, they don't really believe in themselves; they can actually do it. And then when things come up, like hey, gym is closed, or oh, I don't have time for meal prep, like those things are tactical things, and we can talk about it too. I have definitely tips, but it's mostly at question of commitment i think if you are committed to something and we all had this like maybe you had a like a big project we had to finish like a big test coming up or these big events in our life like we are committed to make it work like we'll put in the work to get it done and to pass it or like to be successful and if you treat your health like that you gotta find solutions There's, you're gonna be resourceful you're like gym is closed i'll just drop down and do 50 push-ups i always like to say if you have a floor you can exercise, mm -hmm. right? You don't need a gym. You don't need equipment. And gravity. And gravity. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. Actually, <laughs> I need to add that. Um, and I think, if you think about it that way, and just, I think the biggest challenge for people is to get in tune with their why, like, why am I doing this? Then it makes them overcome any challenge. Like, we've had people in very challenging situations, especially in the last two years with everything mm -hmm. going on. Um, people losing family members, losing jobs, like... All of these things are tough, but because they are, they have this big why and they're committed, they, mm. they find solutions. And I think that's the biggest challenge. Mm. Someone believing themselves and having a big reason why they're doing it and mm -hmm. constantly reminding themselves. Right. That. And I think some of that is like translatable skills. So you do it in one area of your life. I know like myself personally, let's take the gym for example. You know, I wasn't, when I was 18, 19, I was always pretty strong, but I definitely wasn't like, didn't have a lot of muscle. And I just showed up at the gym all, you know, quite consistently, three, four days a week um, during uni university, enough to start getting the results. And as you said before, that, that was, I mean, for me, that was hugely motivating. So I was, you know, I, I had this proven model of just stay stay disciplined, stay committed to something and, and the results come. And that almost act, acted as a template then afterwards in many other aspects of my life with whether it was with studying or in business. Um, so it can actually be quite a powerful sort of life learning experience. Yes, that's why I love exercising and being on a fitness journey because it teaches you so much about life and about yourself. And uh, you evolve a lot as you as you go through it. We have people that we that we help. And again, I'm just telling saying this because I've just seen a lot of stories um, who quit their job. Like they lose 20 mm -hmm. pounds, more confident. And they're like, I don't want this job anymore. It's not mm -hmm. fulfilling me. I'm not really growing here. So they quit their job and they get a much better job or they get a promotion mm -hmm. or they do other changes because they 
finally feel empowered right. to, to take action. Yeah. yeah, that's incredible what confidence can do to someone. It's huge. It's what everything. would you say to someone who, let's say, they're lacking confidence to or lacking motivation and or confidence to get into the, the gym? And they said, Fritz, I understand what I need to do, but I just don't have the motivation. Mm-hmm. So there's different layers here. I think one of the biggest layers that I said before is the why. So actually having a reason. I think there's also research on this actually. I think they had three groups in this one study um, and they had, it was about going to the gym, right? And who was the most consistent. And the first group just got told, hey, go to the gym. The second group got told, hey, go to the gym at this time and this day. And the third group got told, go to the gym and write down your why and make sure like know why you're going where you're going and when when it's happening right i probably butcher it it's not like mm-hmm. but it's like that's the, the message of the of the study and what they found is that the last group most of them went exercise right and it's because they had a why they had they knew where to go and when to be there structure yes and meaning structure and meaning yes interesting and I think those are the two things that are crucial or the three things. And then it's just about putting in the action and then it just becomes normal. It becomes mm-hmm. this second nature. And like you, like you said, you see the results. So when someone tells me, hey, I don't feel motivated to go to the gym, then we first look at, okay, why is this important to you? And that's like an exercise that may be interesting for listeners to try as well. It's called the seven levels of why. And it's an easy exercise. You just... Ask yourself, what's my goal? And then you ask why seven times. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, it gets really deep. Like it mm-hmm. starts with, hey, I want to lose weight because I want to be confident. Mm-hmm. Why do you want to be confident? Because I want to find a partner for life. I want to have a good love life. Why do you want a good love life? And then it's like, it gets very deep and you build like a like connection to your why. And it's not just a superficial mm-hmm. trying to be healthy, um, which is a great reason, but why? Like, what's what's it doing mm-hmm. for you? And then it creates this root motivation that helps you wither the storm mm-hmm. of gym being closed, not having time, kids screaming. You're like, okay, I want to do this because of this mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter what obstacles come up. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get people who perhaps just have an aversion to going to the gym? They're just a little bit, um, you know, lacking self-confidence, worried that people are looking at them. Yes, 100%. So we have that um, people don't like being in that environment, people looking at them. So there's always easy solutions. You can always work out from home, no problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you can definitely see as great results as well from, from home, especially with everything happened the past two years. Um, I still remember the day everything started with everything being closed down and everything. We had to create like, home workout plans for all of our clients, like overnight. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be fun. Uh, but then we really mastered it. So we learned that home workouts can be as effective as, mm-hmm. as gym workouts. So if you listen to this and you don't like going to gym or it's tough to put in your schedule, start from home. Get some momentum going from home just with your body weight, maybe some bands, maybe some dumbbells. And then you build a confidence and you're like, hey, I actually see muscle, I see progress. You can still progress to the gym. I think not everybody has to go to the gym. Um, it's uh, it can be preference, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and it can also provide for me. It provides a lot of structure 
kind of angers my days. Mm. You know, it's because back to my question about motivation, I can tell you there are days where I do not feel motivated to go to the gym, but I still I still show up, um, and it comes back to the structure and and it kind of provides a good scaffold for my day. And I know that I just feel better and I'm more, more productive, but then it also taps into, I guess, what's the deeper meaning behind why I'm doing it. I actually like, like that you say that because I think James Clear talks about this as well, that sometimes it's just about showing up, right? It's like set the goal for yourself to just step your foot in the gym, mm -hmm. maybe do the first exercise on your plan. And then you can leave after, mm -hmm. like no problem. But then once you're there, I actually had yesterday, I was on a scooter, I was like, damn, it's a tough workout day. I actually had it today. Uh, tough workout day, busy day ahead. I don't really want to do this like deadlifts mm -hmm. <laughs> on the plan. Right. And I was like, I'm just going to drive there and see what happens, right? And then I'm there pulling up the app and just, just getting after it. Mm -hmm. So that's a good strategy as that, well. That is yeah, great tip for folks. Just get there. Uh, you'll find it hard to bail once you're in the doors. Especially when you have people there that you know, right? Mm -hmm. So I kind of knew, right. okay, Simon might be there. Yeah, I'll so be I'm watching like, those deadlifts. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> the, like, the if I come in and, and the leave. <laughs> there we go. Thank you for listening to part two of our Health and Longevity 2022 Year in Review episode here at The Proof. To learn more about the guests and episodes featured within this compilation episode, please check out the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode and have a spare moment, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and or subscribe to The Proof on Apple or Spotify. You can also leave a written review on the Apple Podcast app if you are an Apple user. All of this really does go a long way to helping the show reach more people, which ultimately means greater impact and allows myself and my team to spend more time bringing you high-value content. And if you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future topics or guests that you would like to see on the show, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I, myself, and my team make sure that we read all of these. Thank you for being here. Have a great week. And I look forward to catching you in the next episode with Dr. Jill Carvalho, where we discuss saturated fats and cardiovascular disease, covering the importance of dose, the replacement nutrient, and the source of saturated fats. When you have this information on hand, it will help you navigate the forever-changing headlines on this area of nutrition. <laughs>